0: The perfect karmic profession. It's, it's almost kind of magic. Oh wow, that's a good question. You gotta be honest, man. That's so expensive.
1: I don't
2: know, it's too expensive.
0: They don't always come up that often, but when they do, grab them with both hands and just throw everything at it.
1: Hello and welcome to the Tom Hutch Podcast, where I interview individuals who have made a successful career within the music industry to find out how they got to where they are and any tips or advice that they have for musicians at any level and at any stage of their own careers. My guest on this episode is Steve Pierce, who's one of the most experienced bass players working in London today. Most recently, he held the bass chair in the West End for the Carol King musical Beautiful and plays regularly on sessions in the top London studios. Over the course of his career, he's played with the likes of Van Morrison, Stevie Wonder, Tom Jones, Al Giroux, Brian Ferry, Madonna, Mark Knopfler, Seal, Randy Crawford and many, many more. His TV work also includes being in the house band for shows such as Sports Personality of the Year, Proms in the Park, The Royal Variety Show and tons more. In this episode, we talk about the skills needed to work in studio sessions, grafting and serving your talent, the experience of working with household names the importance of doubling on your instrument, and much more. Steve has a lot of stories from his career and has been working consistently at the top of the industry for decades, and you're about to hear why, so please enjoy this conversation with Steve Pierce. Where did you grow up? Were
0: you London-based? Okay. No, I, I grew up in Hitchin in Hertfordshire, which is about uh, 30 miles from here. And my dad was a piano player, and when I was 14, he, I asked to play, an in, if I could play an instrument. And I, Apparently, I wanted to play the drums. I don't remember that. <laughs> but he thought, "Oh, no drums in my house now. Why, <laughs> why don't you play the bass and then you can come out and work with me?" Because right. he did like primarily did uh, little dance band gigs and weddings and little you know functions on a Friday and Saturday night, pub gigs and stuff. Yeah. Um, so by the time I was fifteen, I was out playing with him, uh, learning standards jazz standards he put a piece of music in front of me on the first day that I bought he bought me a bass guitar Mm. so I knew what a crotchet was and I knew where B flat was on the stave from day one
1: so learning to read straight away well
0: yes and that is the greatest gift in in terms of how it's helped me make a living although maybe I would have done something else music tends to put you where you Deserve to go. It's a perfect karmic profession, as far as I'm concerned. Really, I think so. If if you put whatever you put in, will come back to you. Uh, I, it's it's almost kind of magic, really, because that's what I found. right If you try hard and you and you want to do something and you you go into that area and learn it and and give respect for the music, it will come back to you, and you'll find yourself well, all over the world and doing whatever, really. Right.
1: Not always straight away, just at some No,
0: time. no, I mean, I think if you push it, you you don't push the universe, because it will right. just push back twice as hard, you know. Yeah. So it's really hard when you're young, because you, you're, you're, you're anything but cool, are you? You're <laughs> sort of like, come on, I want it now, I want it. I can do that, I can do that. Why is he doing that? I should be doing that. You know, there's yeah. all those things going on in your mind. Um, but um, I think it will come to you you keep working at it, you know, Mm. that's my motto anyway. Yeah, that's probably a good way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, it's funny funny because you're the third person that in about two days, I had this conversation with, two days ago, I did a little pub gig down in um, in, uh, Kingston called Boaters, I don't know if you've ever been there. I've
1: heard of it, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a really nice gig on the river, jazz, they'd have jazz and funk and R&B, little live bands, usually a quartet, Sometimes a quintet, and I do that every now and again. And and somebody bought their son along; who was sixteen, bass player, and I had that very conversation with, with him my... because everybody wants to know what to do and how to get on, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, when I was fifteen, you could be not very good and go and play with your dad playing, you know, tunes and stuff, mm. um, and make some money. Because there were gigs like that around then, you know. Uh, So it was kind of um, learn as you earn, which was really, which is why I've never done anything else. I've only ever been a musician. Right.
1: So from the age of fifteen, just straight onwards. Yeah. That's right. I left
0: school in the uh, Easter in the A levels because I was basically earning. It wasn't suiting me going to (laughs) the discipline (laughs) of going to school, and then going out Fridays and Saturdays with my dad and being an adult right. at 15, 16, 17. And you, um,
1: did your parents support you in doing that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, my dad was knocked out, you know. Right, great. Because, uh, and um, so I did that. And then, of course, there was lots of work around then. Uh, not studio work, Well, I didn't ever think about it, although that's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be a studio musician. Um, but... I didn't push that either. I kept, um, you know, kept my ears open and learning, reading about studio musicians. There weren't. There was only one college you could go to, which was Leeds at that time. Oh, really? Um, that did bass guitar. I mean, no Guildhall wouldn't have even let a bass guitar through the door in, in no 1975. You, you know, yeah. no. I mean, they all they, they, they have fine, fine, fine things. I mean, you couldn't do it. There was no such thing as a jazz course I at mean, right. like Trinity or or the Academy or whatever. You know. There was only this place in in Leeds, and I and I didn't fancy going there because I was working already and being in Hitchin, you could drive to London, do a gig, and drive home. You know, I mean, yeah. it, was, it was commutable. So, and I lived at home, so there was no problem at all. Um, just kept getting gigs and doing everything I could playing. Um,
1: so, what was your the, was there like a first moment when after your Doing all your gigs with your dad and everything, yeah. but you
0: started doing gigs with someone else. Uh, you, well, well, funny enough, when I was seventeen, I did. Uh, I got two jobs. Uh, first job was with my dad in a hotel in Wembley, six nights a week. Um, I was seventeen. Yeah, just I was yeah nearly eighteen, um, and we used to do. We used to play a little set. It was a quartet. Played a little set for people eating, and then there was a cabaret. It was like a cabaret club. Right. Um, And we used to get, on a Monday, we'd have the Monday afternoon rehearsal, and we'd rehearse the cabaret, Then we'd do the evening um, sort of little things. My dad used to write out nice little funky things for a quartet, so I was reading things, you know, testing myself that way.
1: So you're getting both things you're
0: getting the reading exactly. and the jazz. Yeah, yeah, and thing. and it, chord symbols. So I was kind of he, he wrote out when it, when I started working, he wrote out 600 standards for me in a book.
2: Jeez.
0: Yeah. I mean, he I can't emphasize what great support he was really because I mean, that, you know, the real you couldn't buy a real book then. Mm. Um so that was his his chords that that sta stood me in great stead and then I what happened was he was busy elsewhere. So with the little, the six night a week residency, he'd put piano players in. So I'd play, get to play with other people. They'd bring a little pad in and I'd get to sight read that. Right. Um, the drummer worked with the BBC Radio Orchestra and the guitar player was in the BBC Radio Big Band. And very good, really good players, good much better sight readers than me or my dad and were session people. They played, right. they did studio work, which is what I wanted. Ah. And a drummer called Kenny Hollick, um, older guy, lovely, lovely guy, great player, real old professional, kind of good little funky player. He, I used to drive from Hitchin to him, his house in Bushy, and he, we used, he used to take me to studios all over London, and right. I used to sit there and watch, and I met people that I still know today. Uh, who I've worked with for years and years now, yeah. always remember me as the kid that used to sit in the corner with headphones on, drinking it all in. Really? So in terms of, I made my own college course up, if you if you know what I mean. Because mm. there was no such thing as studio, you know, you didn't, you go well, to college now. No, know, there
1: is really, at the moment. I mean, do you, you, is there courses
0: up? Well, if you go to like ACM or somewhere, one of those those places, they have modules where you get to play in a studio and, yeah. You know, you learn about that. But my time, in my time, nobody... That was like a, a complete elite mm. thing. Studio musicians didn't do West End shows, didn't do jazz... Well, they did jazz gigs, but they didn't do sort of sort of function gigs. Yeah. They just did studio work. So, so they were like pure session yeah, musicians. I mean, they were the absolute cream of the business because the best players did that. Right. And um, there was lots of studio work around. And so I could... I saw a chance I could break into that if I got my sight reading skills up and got my, and learnt the experience. And so I used to go around to the studios with Kenny and then I started going to BBC of Ale Studios, which is still there. And at that time, there were six studios. Studio one was where the BBC Symphony Orchestra was based. Studio two was like a very live ambient one where they had like choral works recorded. Studio three was where the radio big band recorded every day. Uh, they had, this is when they had staff orchestras. Okay. Uh, studio four and five were little tiny studios where they did all the John Peel sessions and the rock and roll sessions. And, right. and studio six was where the radio orchestra was, which is a, a, the strings and a rhythm section. And I used to go down there and I used to go from studio to studio. They all knew me as this kid, <laughs> that, this kid who, who was keen, mad keen, and I hung out. That I used to go whenever I could go down there, right. sit next to the bass player in the in the uh, radio orchestra, learn how to follow a conductor because I had no experience of that at all because I didn't go to college. Yeah. So I kind of learned that. I learned how to how to leave watching him play, and how his experience got him round things that were tricky or following a stick where where you're playing with a string section that are a mile behind and you will learn where the bounce on the, you know, the stick is and all those things. And I I encountered some incredibly kind older musicians because I was respectful and I had sort of grace sitting there and I wasn't a pain in the ass. And, um, and I learned all my stuff from that. So Mm. by the time I got, did my first session, which actually was before then, but I had some skills um, that, you know, were valuable yeah. for later on when I did start getting booked on big things, you yeah.
1: know. So was it like you got your first session and then you were like, wow, I love this. So then you were like, I want more of this and you went and yeah. started sitting in.
0: I think things. I think it was, my, but also maybe it was a reaction to the fact that my dad never was a studio musician because he didn't really sight read well enough. Um, uh, so, and I, he, it was almost like I was, living vicariously through him but it's like i wanted to be that i always wanted to be the best at that at right. being a freelance professional musician and that i always saw it that these guys walked in and they were happening players and, mm. and could read everything and you know so it's that's what all, that's just what always appealed to me so i that's what my goal was really um
1: and when did you was that like 15 or did you, was that 17 when you
0: uh well the thing is i knew at 15 i met all i wanted to do was meet bet play with better drummers cuz the wow. drummers i started playing with in these like little dinner dance function gigs yeah. were pretty some of them were pretty terrible but, <laughs> you know but then i'd meet my dad and me had uh, well i've got uh, my record collection is when he died when i left home we had to split our record collection up cuz we had this fantastic record collection at home we listened to Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, big band stuff. Um, so he was, and we used to listen to music on the way to gigs, all the way from Hitchin to God knows where. Um, and so we learned about music together and it was an amazing thing. And we used to take, he had, we used to do lots of, lots of little trio gigs and we used to have various drummers and we, we were into kind of Herbie Hancock and um, funk stuff really and he used to write things out and, and torture these poor drummers. <laughs> All they wanted to do was play a waltz and a few bits of brushes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, my dad was writing out Steve Gadlick from a Diodato album or something, <laughs> and going, oh, Ian, I, I don't think I can play this. I don't want, and, they, and you could see him, like, sweating, but it was great, you know. But, uh, and then I met a few, a few other good drummers uh, who came in and... Uh, Uh, played in me dad's trio because he had a nice little gig out up in Cambridge in a hotel motel on a Friday and Saturday and the drummer who started doing that was a guy called Robin Jones who's um, a percussion player actually a great percussion player he's still around he's about 87 or something ridiculous and he played really nice drums and he started putting depths in that were really good and one person he put in was a guy called Alan Ganley. Do you remember Alan Ganley? No, I don't. Think okay, so. he's an old jazz guy who played with Tubby Hayes. Uh, fantastic player, great big band ranger. And he emigrated. He went emigrated to Bermuda, and he came after many years. And then he came back. And he didn't have any work, so he put. Uh, he ended up doing all sorts of things that he would never have done before. And Robin put him. Robin Jones put him in as a depth for him. and he turned up and that week I would bought a Jim Hall album with Ron Carter Art Farmer um, who else Tommy Flanagan all all sorts of people Michael Brecker was on it Um, and Alan Ganley was on drums because he was an old friend in Bermuda of Jim Hall a jazz guitar player so I went to the gig and I was shitting myself and I was 16 (laughs) I thought 16 I was 16 and uh, at the end of the gig he said Steve, he said, You've got a fantastic time, keep at it, keep working. And it, it was like amazing for me, you know, mm. it was a, a real fantastic experience that someone who I've got an album with who's playing drums on takes the trouble to say that to me, you know. Yeah. And that was a confidence boost and that kind of pushed me forward. And I ended up playing with him a few times after that. In uh, uh, So that was kind of a. Yeah, it
1: must have been
0: amazing. Yeah, this is, all I'm talking about is like the slow ascent. Yeah. Of my career, things that happen to you, you know, and then you start getting little calls, and people will go, "Oh, he's good," "Oh, he's good," and, and mm. you, yeah, I ended up just doing all sorts of things. Really, you know, um I did my fair share of really terrible functions, man. Bar mitzvahs, Jewish weddings—they weren't. My daughter's a singer, and she does a higher level function band, and I've seen it, and it's fantastic. Right, and I did five years of it, and. They were terrible, really <laughs> terrible, terrible old muzos who didn't give a shit. We didn't. We did like a horrible pop set at the end that all the old guys didn't want to play. Mm. And early on, no, there, were no, there was no music. All you did was the You know, uh, people were holding two, putting two fingers down means B flat. In yeah. We go, bossa nova. We do like half an hour of bossa over's. With, with trumpet players going D, D minor and you'd have to know it so it was like amazing right. grounding but really as far as quality of music was concerned it was awful <laughs> I couldn't stand it I couldn't, I mean I couldn't wait to to get out, out of it anyway I started doing a few sessions and the people I met they'd have little side sessions you know bits and pieces uh, so I started learning that sort of thing and um then I moved to London, 1980, um, and I got, then I got, my name was kind of being banded about, as sort of a young bass player, I was about 22, I think, and I got phoned by a top session fixer called Sid Sax. Right.
2: Um,
0: very famous old guy, funny, very funny, little Jewish fiddle, great fantastic fiddle player, he used to fix all of the film sessions and everything and he i did an andrew lloyd Webber musical called song and dance because they wanted a young band right a good young band and sid used to fix andrew lloyd Webber's sessions so he said i want sid to fix a so i ended up doing that um which was good made an album with that with of the cast of that and then i met the md harry harry rabinovitz who i went on to work with in on film sessions and tv shows he was the MD there. The guy who took over from him, him, Kenny Clayton, I ended up doing loads of sessions for him. So right. you see what I mean? The piano player, uh Fee Trench, who um, arranged the strings for the Van Morrison albums that I played on. I used to do loads of uh, disco hit sessions for him. Right. That's my first session. So like 1980 two that was I did the show I only lasted three months I couldn't stand the repetition of doing eight shows a week really drove, my, drove me round the bend at 22 mm. and I lasted three months and then I went off and did I, I'd rather do dodgy weddings than sit in a pit you know this really? I'm going to it all changes later in life okay alright you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll come to that in a minute but uh So I went off and did that and then started doing some sessions and thinking, yeah, this is good. This is good. This is good. And then the real change, uh, happened on the day of Live Aid, right? Which was July the 13th, 1985, because uh, I was living in Hendon in a little, in a little rented flat. And I had a a terrible Jewish wedding or something that night. And my, Girlfriend, now my wife went had a ticket to go to Live Aid at Wembley, so I said cheerio to her. She goes off. I'm in my dressing gown. I put the telly on. Status quo. Come on, start playing Rocking All Over the World. And uh, I thought, I'm not doing this gig. I'm not going to do those gigs anymore. I right. can't stand this. I can't. I've got to do something else. Uh, so. I spent all day on the phone trying to get a, a debt for the gig really? that, right yeah it was and a I've mental got... switch Oh yeah to totally there, uh, it, just... my, the vibe was so were you born there in 1985
1: No right
0: okay well the I mean to be around for that in the going on in the world was just immense what it was you know it was a I mean you you used to kind of benefit concerts now um of huge statue but that was the first one and was it was like, fucking amazing yeah. and i was nailed completely nailed to the floor and i thought i can't i can't do shit work it i can't do this shit anymore i've got to get down to some work and practice and get myself in to another level Right. otherwise I would just be turning up to some fucking function suite and playing terrible music with old geezers all my life you know what yeah. I mean anyway so I did, I stopped yeah. and um, yeah, that coincided, that was about, that was 1985 and 1986 I started working for um, um, a session fixing company called UK Orchestras who were really, really successful for a small time, and I did some en- enormous sessions, film sessions, TV sessions, record sessions, orchestral, you know, and yeah. and, and the reputation that I gained from doing that comes, continues to this day. That's I always think of that. Sounds
1: kind of like a jumping off point. Yeah, almost. 1986.
0: That's when I considered okay. I'd reached my studio musician right. goal.
1: So what did you do between 1985 when you? Mentally switched to them when right. you got
0: that for like a year. Okay, well, th- what did I do? Um,
1: do you just not not do as much work at all? And well, I was
0: still started doing sessions by then because I, I I'd actually started doing sessions, but I I it was less to do with I could have actually afford not to do it, to be honest. Right. So so that helps. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously you know <laughs> yeah. you have to do something. You have to. I still had to pay the rent, but I was in a little poxy flat in Hendon. It was um. 50 quid a month or something Mm. and yeah so I got by you know um,
1: yeah because I think a lot of people like the financial especially in London the financial element of it is such a big thing like these days as well it's just like so expensive it's mental but the function stuff seems to be the thing that keeps people like afloat Yeah. When they first start
0: out, and you know what, I went to do a masterclass down a talk down in ACM in Guildford. I spoke to the guy who runs the base thing there, and, he, and I said, I told him about doing functions and how much I hated them. And that I hated functions, and he, and he said, "You know that that's really like a really sought after thing to do now." Yeah. And I didn't really know because all I have is my experience of it. And as I say, now that my I saw saw I've seen my daughters. Uh, function band that's they're, they're amazing I'd have loved to have done that yeah. I'd like to do that now well think I think
1: how... I think there is there is still like you're saying there is still the function stuff where you know you just turn up and it's a bit a bit like a slog right Like and I, think, I know a lot of people that I've done a lot of it myself as well yeah. but then these days like you're saying there are there's kind of like a split yeah. like yeah, yeah. function bands are either like really on it yeah and like
0: well I did I mean I did function bands that were the top function bands But they were just shocking because it was all old people who just wanted to play, wanted to do a quick step or a voxtrot or a bloody waltz or something, you know. Pop music was something that when they were all terribly pissed and you did like YMCA, you know, (laughs) you know what I mean? So it was like, and the quality of it and my playing, I was playing with drummers who didn't give a shit about Pop music, and I, I did give a shit about yeah. everything. I give a shit about everything I play. I try and find the music in whatever I am put is put in front of me, or I'm expected to play. You know. I mean,
1: that's probably the mentality of like, session musician.
0: Yeah, gotta be. Yeah, got to totally. Be. I mean, the, mind you, I mean, there's there's, there's lots of session musicians um, who I've been in studio with, who primarily like brass players, I guess, who don't like pop music, but they're fantastic craftsmen at their at their at their craft you know what i mean so and
1: it's kind of more like a job yeah in that job yes
0: yeah. yeah but then they're not required to be creative in any way they're just supposed to be you know what i mean they just Read reproduce on the what's on the chart brilliantly and yeah. we have the best session musicians in the world as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. i've i been in studios with them they're absolutely astonishing players and they they'll go out and play jazz or whatever they want to play yeah some people don't. Some of them are fantastic jazz players, but don't ever go and play jazz. They just go and sit in the studio. Yeah. You know, it's so there's room for all sorts of personalities. But I'm in the rhythm section, and if you talk to any, I don't know who else you've talked to, but you know, if, if you talk to Adam Goldsmith, he's, he's fucking burning and uh, in, enthusiastic and cares about his sound and his, and you know reading and playing and listening to records i play in his band man i mean Mm. it's it's like wicked you know we go and we go and do tv shows a raw variety show or whatever you know the sports personality of the year we sit in the orchestra and play gary lineker on (laughs) and piss ourselves laughing you know and then we'll go out and do a gig we went down to southampton for 50 quid yeah the other day really last 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 summer but we because we just wanted. We said, "Come on, let's go out and play. Let's get a few gigs." And the saxophone player said, "Well, we could do uh Southampton Jazz Club, but it pays fifty pounds a head, and you put, you put the and then they put the hat round." And we went, "Oh, come on, let's go and do it." You know, wow. so so there is like real enthusiasm goes on, and if and
1: and that's that's in, that's like a massive part of it for you and for, everyone yeah, else involved.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. um yeah, I, I mean, I know people who don't do that, but I can always be asked to put my my amp in the car and go and play. Hmm. And sometimes I play for nothing. If if somebody asks me for a charity thing or whatever, if the music's there, I'll go and play anywhere. I've, I've never lost that love 42 years later. I've right. never lost it, you know. Um, and uh, I was playing double bass on a session for an Italian artist the other day where... Somebody I've been playing doing sessions for for thirty years was the MD, and we were telling stories of all sessions gone by and funny things, you know, hilarious things that have happened and all that. And I and I love that as well. You know, I'm playing yeah. music that's written out for me, and then the next night I go and play at Boaters with a girl girl singer who's fantastic girl singer. turns up with a sheet of chords, and we made music out of. You know, they're they're kind of pop tins and stuff, uh, nice standards and all that, but we yeah. put a different spin on it. And it was massive. You know, I love that. That's two complete different ends of my, what I can do. Yeah. But uh, you talk about making a living, that's what I have to do. I, I mean, right. I took up double bass in 1996, which is twenty years, 20, over 20 years after I started playing. Okay. And that's been a valuable... String to my bow, if you might, if I might say so. You know, I, I, is, that, I, is that
1: why you took it up? Because you were... Uh, well, I'll tell you what I was doing. You in
0: holding... No, well, there was that. And there was a very fortuitous thing happened when I started playing it. My a real good friend of mine, Simon Gardner, who's the lead trumpet on Strictly Come Dancing, that bass in the corner there, he inherited it in 1980. Right. From a guy a uh, family friend and it always been in his bedroom at his flat in Arnest Grove um, and I said to him I, I was doing Jesus Christ Superstar 1996 and so I, this is when I go back into the West End and okay. I, I have to put, get on with it because I did uh, well, chronologically 1986 you say about when I after Live Aid 1986 I got a show called Chess Right. in the West End, with uh, Mitch Dalton on guitar, who I've known since I was 18, and Graham Ward on drums, and we were paid a fortune to be the ABBA's rhythm section. There, was, there were two guys from ABBA wrote Chess, yeah. with Tim Rice. And uh, we had to audition, and consequently we were, we charged what we liked. So <laughs> it, it was very, very lucrative time then. Okay. So I went back into the West End then. Then I didn't go, in, then I didn't have to go in the West End, From like 1988. I was so busy. In the studio. That was my real cream time. I was doing Van Morrison. Randy Crawford. Loads of things. Loads of loads of things. It was a fantastic time. Yeah. And then 90. Sort of 1990. My daughter was born. uh, 1992. The work was pretty duff. And I got. Into, I started doing Les Miserables in town which right. every, if if you if you know the music everybody <laughs> said how the hell can you play that music <laughs> but I got my head down and it meant that I could be with my kids all day and then at six o'clock driving to the West End yeah. and I could be off whenever I like which was really a fantastic thing so I was not really there very often it was a really good sort of Diary so it was filler. more like a kind of life. Yeah, yeah, it was. In, yeah, in way, yeah. My wife didn't have to w- have to work, she could be at home with the kids. I went and grafted, came home, took my kids to school, went to all the things. You know, it was a, it was really was very very, a nice time really, mm. and I mean, well, people of your age. West End shows are like gold dust to you lot. I you'd love one of those. Yeah, you? it's going you know that I mean? way now. Yeah. yeah, man. Well, I've just finished doing, um, beautiful, the Carol King musical oh, right, yeah. with Neil Wilkinson, two and a half years of that. And it's, that's fantastic. It was fantastic because it was all people of my age or, or similar. So none of us want any grief. We, we had a fix through, let us be off when more or less when we liked, right. uh, it was a fantastic band. And I know I realize, and it's worth a fortune a year. I mean, you, it's the, probably the only way as a musician you can afford a mortgage and live in London if you do a show. You know, so,
1: like in terms of like steady yeah, work, yeah, and like yeah, yeah, being lucrative enough yeah. to live off it. Yeah, like you're saying these days, definitely. Western seems to be. I mean, it seems to, from people I've talked to, this it's, the impression seems to be that all the session stuff when that started kind of going. Less and less, yep. almost. Yep. Like, all of the players kind of went from there to, to the, the West End.
0: End. I mean, it, look, before my time, you would not get a studio musician anywhere near a West End job. Nowhere yeah. near.
1: Well, like you said, you did it for three months and then... Yeah,
0: yeah, because nobody, nobody could even comprehend And consequently, the standard in the West End was really shit.
2: Mm. And
0: actually, my, when I started in the West End 1982, that was really... That was a good band, Really good band, and there were session players in it, so right. you could see the change happening. They offered better money, uh, and they enticed session players into the West End. And as you say, when the when the studio work, TV shows, and stuff dropped off, mm. um, now all the people I see in the studios all do West End shows. Yeah, all of them strictly come dancing lot, uh, not Trevor or Brett, but all the others all do West End shows mm. as well.
1: So they'll kind of like they'll do the do the shows and then if they get sessions during the day they'll yeah. do them. They it's will. Just like, yeah. Yeah. So it, it one thing that like, a thread that seems to be coming out of everyone that I'm talking to as well is like people like yourself who do all the sessions and do the shows and everything like and people who are just like successful musicians like just don't seem to stop. It's just no. constant, yeah. <laughs> constant graft, like you're saying, yeah.
0: Well, the thing is, it's not for everyone, this business. I say this to people all the time. And in fact, whenever there's somebody, a story comes out where, especially in the West End, where someone's gone fucking mad in between shows or something and got absolutely rat-assed or someone uh, someone said the wrong thing on a session and they got rubbed out or... And it's like I always just say, well, this business is not for everyone. You know? yeah. It's not; it doesn't suit everyone. And unless you love it, and you need, it, I always say, you don't, you, you don't do it because you want to. You do it because you need to mm. be a musician. And if you don't need to, you're not going to be one. Yeah. You know, like I'm going coming back to the karmic thing, right? If you need to do it, it will look after you. Uh, but if you go, oh, I can't be asked to do this, then. It won't be asked. The music business will not be asked. And yeah. You will not be a musician. Mm. So when you say about us grafting, we don't think of it like that. Yeah. I, I don't know what, what anybody else has said, but I I mean I work all hours of the day, and mm. I drive. The last the couple of two three weeks ago, I did a little tour with a guy. i play playing Hamish Stewart's band. He used mm. to be the singer with the Average White Band. I've been in his band yeah. for twenty years. Never made any, not really any money, enough money, but uh, it's my hobby, and I love it, and it's my favorite ever funky gig, it's amazing. And I did a little three-day tour with a friend of him from his from LA came over, and on two of those days, I got you at four o'clock in the morning,
2: right.
0: driving to Manchester and back, uh, and ended up being up to go and do a session the next morning. Yeah. Uh then re- trying to recover and then the next day so my body clot's completely and utterly out of wherever. Mm. But I never once think of it as 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 work, you know. Yeah. I don't I just don't. It's like if I wanna if if I wanna play the music I wanna play, then that's just part of it. You have to drive to Yeah, you know. I mean I think one I think I've drove to Manchester Manchester to faversham in kent to northampton to bournemouth right in one week you know and it's just like whatever it's all right it's fine it's fine you know
1: it's interesting that you say that though because i think when you first start out like i'm kind of at that stage where you start getting stuff further away or whatever like functions or whatever um and then i'm sure other people do as well i started thinking like you know will this Keep going, like well, I well I still keep on do this, and it's mm. interesting you saying that, like that you do do it. And I mean, Adam Goldsmith said exactly the same thing. It was like if you're not sure whether you want to be a musician or not, like you're not going to be. No, like, you have to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you're not at all, and it makes it makes sense.
0: Well, um, I could. I, I said this to the person who brought, brought his son to to talk to me the other day, and I said, because he, he said, "Did you always want to be a musician?" And I said when my dad bought me a bass at 14 the weight just came off my shoulders because i didn't have to think about what the fuck i was going to do i I could go into the o levels not really giving a shit um um, a levels whatever school whatever it was like i'm going to do this it's like like, oh come on and it was just like i looked up and went thank you because it's you know it's, it's that's all I've ever wanted to do so I'm still uh, but in order you have to serve that if if you're given the gift to be uh to have be able to be musical yeah you have to serve your gift that's the way I call, call it so this morning I'm playing double bass studies for you know not long but just playing yeah and uh you know I'll go and play some cello studies on bass guitar a bit later on and you know, whatever it's you have to just keep it going. You know, and I'll put a record on and clock clock what is nice about the bass playing on that or whatever, and you take that with me. It doesn't sort of stop. You know, it's like yeah. you saying you don't just come out of college <laughs> perfectly formed, do you? you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, God, there's so much to le- there's so much to learn from every bit, any every music you ever go and listen to or. Watch. I mean, I watch people play, bass players play on YouTube or whatever, whatever, and I think, oh, that's interesting. Now, that, just that, you know, especially double bass players, you know.
1: Right. So you're still drawn to it. You're still like trying to learn and yeah, develop. Well, because
0: or... the thing is, I mean, it's you can't, you, you can never get it right, can you? You can get the note right, but it's the feeling, isn't it? It's like yeah. If I was with my, my concept of bass is about length of note, sound of note, volume, dynamic of note, of the note, um, where you place it, where you don't place it. It's like there's there's so many variables that, and they're so um, governed by the drummer's bass drum sound
2: right. or
0: how hard he hits the hi-hat or whether he hits it in the right place or the keyboard player's in front and the guitar player's in behind. And, you know, that's four of you. It could be, like, I mean, I, I, I play, this week I'm doing uh, proms in the park at Hyde Park with a BBC concert orchestra. Mm. So here's, here's the list of skills that I I have to, I have to take with me. Uh, first of all, the first skill is trying to get into Abbey Road with my amplifier for a 10.30 start and parking in the park car park at St. John's Wood when I know that there is a Lord's Cricket match on. So I've got to get there early enough to get my car in. Right. I might not. So I've got to now know where the next place I'm going to go and park for a three hour rehearsal, get my amp down into Studio One um, and then go and park the car, then come back. Then... I might start thinking about what I've got to play, which I don't know yet. I don't know what I've got to play.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is like, that's one thing. Like when people say like, oh, you're a musician, like what do you do or whatever, yeah. like that's that's something you never think about it, do you? <laughs> no. like people well, don't realise that this this well, so much Well, let me
0: tell you, when when she phoned me, Claire at the, at the BBC phoned me and said, I think I might need bass guitar for problems in the part I did it last year. I said, oh, great, okay. Uh, but I don't know, it might be double bass. as well. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, double bass in the part. I did the gig last. So I've been thinking about, it's, it's Thursday morning, I've got to be at Abbey Road, we've got to re- sort 10 yeah. to 10.30 to 1.30. So I've... I'm not even thinking about the music because I can kind of take care of that when I get there. Yeah. And basically I've been around long enough that if I can't play it within two minutes then I'm not going to be able to play it. And really? It'll, right. it'll be all right. So it, you whatever. don't have to worry about the music. No, no, I it, don't. Like... I'm more worried about getting my fucking amp in there, <laughs> right? And then whether or not I can persuade Scotty who's the BBC um, roadie, he he drives the truck with all the instruments, and I've got to ask him nicely whether to take my amplifier <laughs> to Hyde Park, so that I can go on the tube like I did last year, which was just glorious. Right. And I mean, that, so all these things. i because I had a result last year, because I played with uh, I don't know Michael Ball and Alfie Bow and a few other people, um, and then the main act was Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, and I right. and I wasn't in that, so. While I was walking out with my bass on my back, because I didn't have to take my amp, yeah. Scott took it back to the to the truck for me. And I was on the tube while Frankie Valley just came on, and I thought, this is such a result. <laughs> and I'm sorry, it sounds really sort of flippant and blasé and all the rest of it, but you know what? The driving and the humping, the gear and and the logistics is just the most nightmare thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I do the Royal Variety Show every year, right? That is double bass. And bass guitar, and a pedal board, and an amplifier, and it's always a pain in the ass. We did it the Palladium. We did it two week, two years running. So you have to drive into Great Marlborough Street, and just hope for the best. Run in to the Palladium where they're setting up a massive TV show. Run in, try and find somewhere to put your double base so that they, people don't knock it over, which has happened before. Right. And then run back and get your car. I mean, it's just, no, absolutely fucking yeah. nightmare. Hammersmith Odin we did, or lebatz Apollo, or whatever it's called now, last year. Oh, my God. There were 30 coaches outside waiting for the punters. <laughs> and one of the missus who came to pick me up was f- arguing with a policewoman. While I'm walking out with my double bass right. because I've got three trips to go. Anyway, it's enough about that. It's, it's the music, isn't it? It's the music, yeah. whatever. So, so uh, I, as I say, I don't know what I've got to play, yeah. but it's, it'll be all right.
1: But it's an important point to make that like, <laughs> yeah. when you're when you're self-employed and you're yeah. doing stuff like that, like if you don't sort that out yourself, like that's that's on you, right? Yeah. So oh, if, yeah. You, if you turn up late cause you haven't found a parking spot or whatever. Like, it's, yeah, it's, listen, there's
0: no such. There's no, It's nobody else's fault than yours if you're late yeah and you can't be late if you're in the rhythm section you can't be late if you if, you know if you can run down the road with a trumpet in your hand well then you're you're in a better place than me i've got no chance mm. I ha- i'm always first always the first in uh, every session nobody ever gets me ian thomas my great friend if he's ever a, a gig or a session before me he's he can't believe it. he goes i fucking, I'll beat you, I'll beat you, (laughs) you know, it it never, it very rarely happens in in 30 years of us doing sessions together, it's, I'm always first, always, because I don't, I can't stand the thought of rushing around, I I mean, you know, whenever I've done, I've had a West End show, like Adam's the opposite of me, Adam Goldsworth. he does everything, and I look at him, I go, what are you fucking doing, man? <laughs> you know, we'd be doing, we, we, we did beautiful, the Carole King musical together. Mm. And we'd be, uh, I don't know, Angel doing some really well-paid film session. Really, really well-paid. And it's like, finish at five, great, you know. And I always take the night off. I, I can't, even entertain the idea of going into the West End, after having a really expensive day in the studio. Right. I feel good about myself. I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah, you yeah. know, Adam, he's off. He, he's doing the show. You know, really? he, yeah. I mean, he's got a young family, and he's he's. i have never. I've always had the mind that I know how much is enough for a week. Okay. After the, if there's, you know, I could earn far more if I just. But I'd rather come home, you know, and right. have sort of, because otherwise I am, all I'm doing is driving to Manchester and back, knackering yeah. myself. You know, I used to do the late set at Ronnie's with Mark Fletcher's band. And that started at 1.30 in the morning and finished at 3 in the, in the morning. And I was doing the show as well, which finished at 10. Oh, God. So on a Friday night, I'd finish the show at 10 and then go to Ronnie's and sleep in the band room for an hour, <laughs> wake up, have a cup of coffee and then go and do but it was because the music was so amazing you know yeah um, but that was crazy that's pretty crazy
1: yeah it's interesting because I I, Adam was the last person I talked to oh, okay about this and he was saying that like it's the same way with anything you know if you look in your diary I, I don't know what it's like with you but um, he was saying like you know next two months you've got XYZ but you know something might come in tomorrow night for tomorrow morning yeah yeah. Uh, for the next morning even and yeah. then like yeah. whatever yeah. I mean do you because like you say you don't like rushing around so I'm right. assuming you don't like worrying about stuff as well but like yes. how do you deal with that being a, being a self-employed musician like I don't know do you have stuff that's booked in far in advance or is it yeah uh, well
0: I have yeah I've, uh, my diary is uh, I'm going to go and get my diary <laughs> I'll tell you this, uh, this is what the state of play is this afternoon this week Thursdays 10.30 to 1.30 Friday's 1 till 4 in Hyde Park. Saturday is 10 till 1 in Hyde Park. Then I'm going to have to come home again because the concert's at 7.15. And Sunday I'm driving to the stables at Wavendon to do a. I do this fantastic band where we play Joni Mitchell tunes, only Joni Mitchell tunes. Great. Band. Yeah, it's fantastic. I get to play all the Jacko bass lines. Yeah, yeah, it's that's lovely. That's worth no money at all. But, well, it'll be worth a few quid, but um that's that right week after I've got a six six gig with Hamish on a Wednesday and I'm driving to Chichester to for very little money again with Hamish next Saturday so that's two gigs right but that's not enough money <laughs> so that's all right
1: is that likely to change between uh, the well it
0: would be nice but it would be nice I mean it's kind of because the show's finished in start of June um this is kind of I'm wondering whether to phone a few people and say, "Can I come in and depp?" Because I used to depp in Mamma Mia, and right. I've got mates who would probably say, "Come in and depp." But if I can avoid it, I
1: will. Is it kind of like you? You've been on a show, and then like it's finished. Yeah. So people, people have known you've been busy for two and a half years. Yeah. or Whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of almost like there's a period after you finish working when yeah. people start to realise that you're about more. Is uh, that, is possibly, that, is that although the my, like that? well,
0: I've always made it sure that the things. People don't book, don't not book me because I'm in a show because they know I can always get out of it. So oh, okay, you see right. what I mean. So yeah. so it's, it doesn't have an effect. So it Doesn't affect it no. too much. Um, I mean, uh, yeah. So there's that. And then there's a week after I'm doing a, uh, a guitar player's album with Ian Thomas. Then I'm doing the BBC Concert Orchestra. That's two days with uh, doing the orchestral Queen. All the all the Queen songs but with an orchestra I've done it for quite a few years I was there when the the original thing was arranged we've right. been to America with it and all that wow. that's that's a, that's a radio show at the Coliseum that'll be good uh, and then another album another session the morning after that what we got there I mean there's a nice little gig just up the road here really nice that's with Adam Adam's band mm. not worth very much money then Michael Ball and Alfie Bow for two days at ITV, uh, Hamish, oh no not Hamish there, and then I've got Nothing, uh, John Pericelli, another little gig, another little gig, these are all just Nothing gigs at all. So then I'm into 19th, of, uh, 18th, 19th of October, which is a char- big charity do for Sugs out of Madness, which that's kind of a week's money, that'll be all right. A week after that, three nights at Ronnie's with the Ronnie Scott's big band, that'll be on double bass. Not a lot not very not enough money. Uh, November one gig week after one gig, not very much. Uh two gigs the week after that, we're going to Dundee with Hamish, we're going to Wimborne in Dorset two days later. Uh, and then we're into the end of November where I know I'm going to have a clash, which is really going to bug me. Because I do the raw variety show, that'll be three days, Right. and that's an earner because it's a TV show and mm. what have you. But I've got a feeling Hamish is going to get Ronnie Scotts in a, that week as well, so that'll be a clash. Right. But none of these, I mean, the T. Oh, there's a sports personality of the year. I do as well, right? Which is three days. probably will be two, three days in Liverpool. That's good money. So you see what I mean? It's sort yeah. of like oh, Christ knows. I, one thing I'm sure of is I'm not going to freak out about it.
1: So you're not worried about it at all? Like no, this is normally what it looks like. Is it in terms of like far in the future? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, all right. So the session I did on Saturday morning, last week, came in weeks' notice. Right. Um. So it's all it's all pretty
1: close. Yeah. To get like if yeah. it gets sorted, yeah. So with without having like the runs on shows in town or whatever, has is it been like that for all the other gigs? For you know the majority of your
0: my career, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, um, I did. Well, that's two and a half years ago. The business has maybe changed and perhaps younger players have started doing my sessions. I don't know. <laughs> I've no idea what's happened. Because I'm really taking any notice because yeah. I just get on with it, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't think so.
1: But I'm, So I'm, you've never worried about it? It's, it's always sorted itself out, like you're saying.
0: I, well, I'm not going to say... I, I'm not, I'm, I've tried, a, attempted not to worry about it. Yeah. I mean, there have been times where... Um, I haven't worked... You know, but I can't do anything else, so yeah. I just had to get on with it. Also, I'm I'm quite good at saving money. Right. Um, when my I always say to young younger people who do shows who get a show,
1: mm.
0: um, and they're all completely knocked out, obviously, because they're going whoopee, I could get a mortgage and all that. And I say I always say to them, budget yourself for six of the eight shows live on six of the eight shows and then take a night off and have a life right. otherwise you get show fever you'll you, you won't do anything else you'll start turning other things down or i mean i've always used you looked upon shows as kind of something to keep me going while I do wait for the sessions to come in, you know. So basically, I've been, just filling all the gaps. Yeah. All the other stuff. yeah, and it's a really good thing like that. But I mean, I if you can live on six shows out of eight, then if you get a nasty tax bill, in, you just do the extra two shows, and, right. and you know what I mean? Yeah. Got, that's the way I. That's the way I've always looked at it. And also, mm. I'm not a big credit card debt runner-up. I I've sure. never been like that always pay it on you time be you know. be smart with the yeah, money man, the, yeah man because you never know i mean i've only got two hands anything could happen couldn't it you know mm. um and anything could happen to anything else around you so i I'm, I'm cautious in that respect you know
1: yeah
0: i've seen people get into financial difficulties you know mm. so uh,
1: so in talking about finances if you've got like the gigs that you've got in at the moment they're like kind of I want to say, like, the fun gigs. Like yeah, they seem to be the ones are, that you yeah. enjoy most. Yep. Cause Absolutely, I mean, they are, are all. Yeah, they're financially, yeah. they're not as lucrative as all no. the other stuff. So what happens if you get something in, I don't know if that does happen, whether it clashes a lot, um, but if you've got sessions happening during the day, so maybe not that. But if you've got something else, you know what I mean, if you've got something else in yeah. when you've already got the stuff, which is, yeah. like, 50 quid in yeah. wherever, what do you do? Do you normally... Okay, use, so,
0: let the, for example, um, I generally always do Hamish Stewart's gig when I can um, I turn sometimes turn quite good work down and why is that because I love playing that music mm. and I, if I can afford to I will but he's also pretty cool about me putting Depp in so he understands yeah he totally yeah. understands and in fact I, the Joni Mitchell gig I'm uh, not doing s- Saturday because I'm at Hyde Park doing the three days at prompt yeah. part yeah. so Phil Mulford's doing that for me he's really happy I'm I've written all the parts out so that it's uh, easy for him he doesn't He do, all he has to do is play through them and read them mm. uh, that's not always the case yeah um, so I in fact that's why I, I had to choose that over the music gig because there's too much money out of the three days yeah with the concert orchestra tv show and they paid me well so i had to get out of that and the girl who sings it gina she understood that because i'm actually dropping her in it and putting a new depth in yeah even though it'll be fine you know uh, i know
1: a lot of people do worry about that when they have to get depths well for you know specific
0: what, things. yes the but the my rule of thumb there is is if you've if you've taken the gig in in good faith then you have to do it if the person is is Sometimes they're—I mean, people are reasonable, you know. I mean, Gina, she said, "I understand, understand. Mm. Don't worry about it. We'll sort it out," and which we did. So that's fine. But if that—if the person who's originally booked me says you can't, you can't let me down like that. I can't get anybody else, and that sometimes happens, you know. Right. You have to blow the money out. You have to blow the get money gig out because if you get a reputation for doing that, people won't book you. Because mm. it's not the right way of doing it. And and let's face it, it's one gig, isn't it? Yeah. But actually the damage you can do to your reputation is, is immeasurable. You did know? you
1: ever do that? When you were first starting out and you were a bit younger, did you ever think, um, did you ever turn something down because of that, thinking like, oh, I really wish I could do that because that's like a new contact, that's a new thing, and I'd love to do it, but I've already got this in, so I've got to stay oh, with no, it. Oh, no, I've,
0: I've I'll always... I'll I'll phone the person who who's booked me for the original gig, mm. and I'll say, "Look, this has come in, and I really want to do it. Yeah, um, ha, can I put a dep in? Generally, people are all right because I mean I I wouldn't dep a session out. You just you would no way you would if you had a session.
2: Yeah.
0: and you had like unless if it was like a three month tour, you got with a pop actor, whatever, or somebody amazing. Yeah. And I went to Isabel Griffiths, who I've worked for 30 years. I'd feel really, really would, I would be really scared about finding her up. Do you know what I mean? Because
1: she booked you specifically because she knows your skills. Oh yeah. 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 And
0: also that's that I've worked for her for 30 years and and we have a fantastic relationship and I've done incredible work for her Mm. and she has been, you know, and I, so I wouldn't do that to her. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and i know oh, i have turned many things down I, I guess now you you talk about it yeah i've turned things down out because there's some things you just wouldn't put a dep in for you know mm. even though they might not even be very good you know you yeah. know they're, yeah, they're, yeah. they're even though they're sessions but they're they're like oh, so even God, though the, gig, you know?
1: the other gig you've offered it might you might put it as a better gig in your mind yeah you don't feel like... It
0: could be even better, money-wise and music-wise. Yeah. But if the, the gig that you've already taken in means that it, it goes against my principle of, of... I would be letting somebody down. Mm. I, I wouldn't do that. Sure. You know. And therefore, I don't have a reputation for being flaky. And some people do. Right. Some people don't get booked. They go, oh, no, he let me down, you know? yeah,
1: yeah. And reputation's a massive thing. Well,
0: the thing is about music, the music business. Everybody fucking knows it the next morning. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's ne- everyone is waiting. Oh, you know, all the people with your own instrument going. Oh, did you hear about so and so? You know, it's like the bush telegraph is terrifying. Right? You know, I mean, everyone knows everybody because it's not it's not that big yeah. a business really. What's left of it? You know, that's the thing. Mm.
1: So, do you, you feel like? Knowing like knowing people is like one of the like who you know, yeah is much more important than like what you know what you can do
0: uh well, no, because there are no passengers in my studio world right no none okay there are if if and that includes every instrument because basically if you. If you are slowing the session down, whether you're the third trumpet player or the singers allowed because they're the turn, right? yeah. or whoever's in charge, but us lot on the ground, do not fuck up. Do not slow things down. Do not answer, ask stupid questions. Do not put your own ego first. Mm. Do not try your favourite lick. Do not show off. Just get on with it, and let's get out of here with our reputation right. intact. Yeah, because yeah. it's fucking hard. It's stressful. It's hard, and basically, you're in. You're in the firing line. Yeah. The red light goes on, and that's it. And it doesn't matter. And sometimes it does. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I can. It, on certain things, I've said. Now we we'll need to do another one of those. And um, as long as it's not pissing off the lead trumpet player who's having to play something very high. You know, there's kind of, yeah. you know, if there's the more the, the more musicians there are in a studio, the more you have to get your shit together and not co- create waves. Right, so right. that mean that means um, making decisions about what you might, how you're going to play. Should you try something new with the risk of blowing it, or shall you just play what's written?
1: Yeah, see what I mean? There's yeah, like yeah.
0: trade off all the time like that, and you get very good at at uh, uh, working out what you can do and what you can't do. But what you were saying is like, is like if you're, if you come in with, you know, and you're blowing it and, and somebody's they look over you going, you know, you ain't going to be invited back. you And it's, so it's that cutthroat. Well, it is that cutthroat yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, t- time is money in, in the studio mm. and they want to get it done, you know?
1: So what's like, so if you're, um, if I ask for two examples, so let's do one. So if you go into Abbey Road, yeah. and it's just like you and like just say like you and Ralph, like yeah. drums and bass, yeah. What's like it? What's the typical kind of? How does the process work from when you walk into Abbey Road to do the session?
0: Okay. Uh, well, first of all, you got to get to stop Ralph talking. <laughs> <laughs> no uh well it'll be a laugh because it's me and ralphie and whoever books us well i mean first of all I, that, well, let's be serious if it, there's two things if it's somebody we've worked for before mm. we'll have a laugh right we'll, it'll be banter and it'll be relaxed and it'll be fun and until for, for an however long and then we'll have live the music we'll have the music and we'll listen to a demo and we'll make uh Pencil marks, and then we'll go and play it. And but there won't be it. Won't be it. Won't be there. Won't be nerves. There won't be. Right. If it, I'm talking about just me and Ralph, because mm. we're such great mates, right? Yeah. In fact, we did the new Michael Ball Alfie Bow album. Me, Ralph, and Pete Murray in Abbey Road,
2: mm.
0: uh, Abbey Road Studio Two. Steve Sibyl was upstairs. I've known him since I was eighteen. Right. So it's fine. We've done yeah. millions of things together. So that's good fun. So
1: when you're saying like time is money, does all, all the banter and all of the, the good laughter and everything, does that happen like before the red light goes on, before the money starts? Uh, okay. Oh, does I see what you it? mean. No no, 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 no. Well, well, first then, of all,
0: you, you'll, first, okay. So here's the calculation. <laughs> Three hour session. How many tunes we got? We, on the Michael Ball one, there was banter, but actually we did six tunes in, for, in what did we do more? It was two sessions. Eight eight songs for an album. We had to do all of it. So um, that's
1: eight songs over six hours. Uh, worth. Yeah. Is, is that quite a lot? For...
0: Uh, I've done more. Yeah. I've done more than that. And also uh, done
1: less. Within that. So I,
0: I've yeah. also done... I, I have more trouble doing less, to be honest, because right. uh, you, you're on it, aren't you? And
1: is that down to you or is that down to the producer? Like somebody being like, let's do it again, let's do it like this?
0: Or Yeah, there could be that. It could be somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, right? but thinks that you know, it could be, if it's a pop thing and it's an artist and there's a guitar player who doesn't read, then I have to suspend my normal kind of way of being efficient Mm. because I'm just going to get up over everybody's nose, aren't I? I'm going, come on, that was all right. (laughs) What what do you want to do it again for? You know, I've seen people do that as well, you know, and get annoyed because you've had to play it six times. But, you got that's part of it as well you got to judge that that's all part of it so if you're saying me and ralph or if we walk in and somebody uh somebody wants to do it again and again we can we'll say well that was pretty good you know and sometimes especially now when you've got multiple takes mm. me and ralph if we are in a situation where people respect what we've done before we can say you know what the you one before was bit, better bit it was clap. much better check the check out that bit and and also me and ralph completely police the bass and drums at times if we're people are used to it and some people who aren't used to it sort of go look back and go fuck these guys are amazing because i'm going ralph would be good if we just push into that there you know yeah. what, what should we play there well, let's let's try it and, and that'll be a, a chat we'll have you know Mm. Um, Between and,
1: yourselves, rather than waiting for someone yeah, to tell you. Yes,
0: because yeah. sometimes the people don't know. They'll have it'll be a, a little guy with a piano, piano, right. and, and he he doesn't know what he wants. So yeah. that's why you book me and Ralph. Yeah. You know, and we come in and we'll um we'll say, and they'll go, that was amazing, and we we'll go, no, no, we will do one more, we will do one more. You know, yeah, and you know what? Here, let's play that there. Maybe just just play one and three on a bass drum, Ralph, and I'll I'll play the kicks or whatever you know what i mean
1: so you two really like do you have conversations like this all the time when you're all doing all the time it yeah you, Spe- like,
0: more, actually probably with ralph more than anything in fact i usually write the parts bass parts out and he photocopies them and uses them as his drum parts right right, right. so uh, uh but
1: but there's no ego involved like if, no if no he's no. like steve do it like this you're like cool let's yeah try it. totally I mean, yeah
0: absolutely and utterly that's how we work. Mm-hmm. And it's all in the in it's it's because we're serving the music and in we're trying to be efficient for the person who's booked us when it gets sticky is when you've got people who've written something that is clearly bollocks right so me and Ralph we're playing, and he'll go, "What are you playing and i'm going what's what's there and he's going really and <laughs> and we'll go, you know then we might say to the guy. Do you want that? You you really want us to play like that? He said, "Well, no, no, you no. Know, you take. Generally, they all if they give it up to us and say, like, you do what you like,' and i 'I'll okay, well, go So then right, we okay. then we start again. You know, yeah, yeah. that's what takes the time. So otherwise, there's so, very few people who write. You can, if you write nothing, or just the basics, we'll take care of it for you because we'll bring. That record collection over there. Yeah. We'll bring all of those grooves. I'll say to Ralph, you know that. Remember that Gadsden thing you play? Oh yeah, let's try that. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, we're bringing our musical experience to your track, mm. and we're talking about drummers that you don't have never probably never heard of, but you're gonna love when he plays like James Gadsden on your yeah, tune yeah. because your tune that you've written is a little bit like that tune that we know so well. See what I mean?
1: Yeah, so these days sessions are much more efficient when somebody writes something like pretty sparse and then you have a 30-second back and forth and then you you can go straight in and record something.
0: Yeah, it can be. But, uh, I mean, it's it's down to personalities really, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, mean, the thing is... We, you have to look after us as well. Don't treat us like arseholes and, and sort of talk bollocks because we're, we're bullshit monitors are uh, set to stun, you know, yeah. set to kill, right? <laughs> so it's like, you know, we do know, we do have been doing this, but, you know, if you tell Ralph to go dubba dubba cha in the wrong place, he's going to go. That just sounds rough, you know. <laughs> you won't say that, but you know. I mean, so I, I don't know. It's a bit difficult to sort of be general yeah. generalise about things.
1: So when you first started doing it, though, how how was it different when you first started doing it? Were you, were you more like shut up and oh yeah, told? oh definitely, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've probably lost work from being mouthy, and I don't mind that either. Really? really? Well, the thing is, is like there are people. I, I've walked into studios and I and I've. Very quickly thought, I'm not going to get on with you. I'm just not going to get on with it. No matter how hard I try, and I'm going to try and make your music sound great. I, that's my job. But for whatever reason, you've got you are intimidated because I can read music, or I've written a part out from your demo, mm. and I will play it brilliantly the first time from your demo, and I'll say, do you want me to play that exactly? that I quite like this part of your your demo and i really like that bass line it'll be some you know sometimes people write demo play bass themselves and it will be so lovely and naive that i'll go that's fantastic you know but if they get freaked out at the fact that i've got a piece of music in front of me which does happen that and they think oh my god a proper musician he's going to find me out and it's not like that at all but that's happened to me and there's nothing i can do nothing (laughs) i can do to, to to stop them from from being intimidated by me, and I know that that's I'm going to have a problem, you know, and that has happened, that right. has happened, and I just have to do my best and go home, you know.
1: Yeah. Do you find that happening more and more these days, or is there like a trend in terms of people coming in and who, the guys who are like booking the session or running it? Well, not, first of all, first associated. of all,
0: usually these days on those sort of sessions, I'm booked by a producer. Um, who I've worked with before, mm. who trusts me. So he knows that if I'm a little bit, not sharp, but if I'm up front, it, I don't mean it out of being arsy. I mean it because I want to serve the music. Sure. And, yeah. and a lot of people are really happy that I've got some... Some idea, yeah. you know what I mean? Because otherwise, you're just sitting there with a sheet of chords, and I, and that's that's no good at all. I mean, if I I bring a base concept to the, the track, you know what I mean. Mm. Um, so,
1: so so it works with like the artist will book a producer, and then the producer yeah. you. Yeah, right. So so the first already, time you meet them is at the studio. Yes, uh, yeah. that
0: happens all the time. Right. But my reputation goes before me. The producers already. Big me up or said I've got Steve Pearce. The great thing about it these days is that people go on Google, Google my name, and you and they go fucking hell. You know, I mean, I've got a fairly impressive CV. Yeah. So it, uh, people are, you know, they'll probably go, "Did you work with uh, Van Morrison?" I go, "Yeah, yeah," and they're kind of like want to hear the stories, yeah. which I'm quite happy to talk to them about. So that's almost like goes before you. Mm. do you know what I mean
1: yeah so when did you first get to did this kind of happen naturally like when when you first got to the stage where you're in a studio and you initially were like kind of put up your hand or you were just like you know yeah. hold on a second like I, I think it should be like this
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah was there a moment when you were kind of a bit like should I say this or like whatever
0: Um, I think I think especially with bass, I've got quite a concept of how to play bass and how mm. it should sound. And if I play, if you give me your chart and I'll play it, the notes will be the, right, but how long the notes are will be my choice. So yeah. if you write like a dotted crotchet and a quaver tied to a minim i'll i'll get I'll play my concept of those three notes, which there might be fifty I could probably show you ten where you would notice the difference, mm. but they don't write they don't know that all they know is it sounds fantastic or it doesn't right and that might be you know if I stop the note a bit the length of note in between the dotted crotchet and the quaver or I play it a little bit nearer the bridge or you know, or I'll I'll do there's never nobody ever writes bloody dynamics on the part, <laughs> So I go, where's the chorus? Alright, okay, go, is this the intro? Because I wanna make a difference in the sections. It's playing yeah. the song, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So that's my concept that I bring to the to the thing. I might alter it slightly but I'm because I've been doing it for so long, um I can pr- pretty much immediately work out what it is but when i was younger you can still go in and just play the notes and it will be all right it's just because mm. most people don't know here do in the middle in the middle of it's my uh, bass is just bass isn't it you know i mean <laughs> the, the, the great thing the, the classic thing is you go into the studio <laughs> And they go, take hours getting a drum sound. I go, can we have a bit of bass? And they'll go, yeah. And I'll say, sounds like a bass guitar, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. You know, because I'm so used to being overlooked because it's just like, no one knows what, you know. I know that if it's a Fender Rhodes and I play a Fender Precision, it will sound fantastic because those two instruments grew up together. In historically, you know, mm. and I, I will play. I might choose precision over this. Yeah, you know what I mean. But that and no one will know why. I don't want any thanks <laughs> for it. You know, forget it. Yeah, They'll yeah. go. it sounds great. God, cheers. Yeah, yeah. So you We're kind of feel like you've got
1: a bit of free reign as a bass player. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And
0: and the great thing is, I talked I talked to Trevor Barry about this because this is what we talk about. Is uh, we we do our own thing, really. Right. And and it'll be fine as long as people trust it. It'll be fine. My my worst thing is is in the studio, is engineers who don't get the concept of what a bass guitar and a bass drum is supposed to sound like. Right. So I go. Some, I, I do sometimes go in the box when we've done a tape. Walk in and I go, can you just put the base the weight of the bass drum. Can you, can you take the click off the bass drum just just a bit and sit it, sit it underneath the bass guitar sound mm. because what happens is there's two things going at the front of the note and you don't want that
2: Yeah.
0: even if they're completely and utterly in time which generally they are I might add <laughs> but some even if they aren't you're getting two lots of click and you don't want that so I, I prefer my bass sound to be the, the round thing like that and then you sit the lovely <coughs> of a bass drum which hits you in the chest with a little click on the top and then there's this beautiful sort of pear-shaped sonic thing every right. every time we play together yeah. and it's just like nudges the song along you know and sometimes they, because engineers are just recording they're not mixing mm. but to me if you start off with the bass and drums sounding beautiful and together then whatever you record on top of that, it's all lovely, yeah. you know what I mean?
1: And then you feel like that helps your performance as well. Well, and not you, only that, it helps
0: people who you're working for, because they all of a sudden they start they're move, nodding their head to it, because <laughs> it's like the finest steely damn groove, or whatever, you yeah. know, I mean, that's what we're after on a lot of things, you know. Um, sometimes not, but when you, we work with different engineers who don't have some engineers don't have that concept and because i do right and ralph for that matter because he's got his own studio yeah, um, yeah yeah he's um we we rottweiler people <laughs> quite often you know about that can you turn their overheads down or whatever because you're you're listening to his drums is not sounding right and he knows how to record his drums you know? yeah yeah, just take the overheads down or i just get what just nudge the bass up a bit you know i i go in and and generally the reason they say it sounds like a bass guitar because i work with the, a lot of the same engineers they don't touch my bass they don't eq it yeah they they don't even you know i mean they don't even put any compression on it and i don't because i play really evenly because i've worked that out my dynamics are within my fingers so you know and it gives me that big dynamic range if you t- put a compressor in it it sort of squashes it a bit mm. you know yeah. But that's just from getting it wrong a few times I suppose right. you know. I mean I was very frightened as a young player in the studios for quite a few years. Yeah. And I still get frightened, still do. Especially really? yes, I mean conductors, you know, I mean where the beat is that's not my background at all. Now I have to have serious bottle because where is all the strings? All the strings go Whatever they like, that behind the lead fiddle, mm. I go bong like that and play the time, and so I have to get where his groove is, and I must do all right because I get asked for by certain people because they know I'm going to take care of it for them. Yeah, because they've got a whole orchestra to try and carve their way through, and they know that I'm right on it. I'm ne- I never, lo- I'm, not, I'm not like everybody else. All the that lot they all say. What you even look up at you look up at him mm. and I go, Yeah, I do actually and you know, if I'm playing with Mike Smith, which I'll probably be, be this week, he's an absolute master at following a conductor.
2: Right.
0: And we when we when we nail it a tempo change or you know, we all nail it and we'll look at each other and go, Yeah, man. Uh, because it's a thing that we've had to come going through, and it's a bottle, yeah. it's an absolute <laughs> bottle. And if we arrive at the beat together and slot the whole orchestra in, and they and the other thing is, is that if they see me and Mike, they then go, Oh, right, we better, we better, they're right, right?
1: Do
0: you see what I mean? You know, so a reputation yeah, yeah, it yeah, and it is, and that's a nice thing as you get older to have acquired, but it comes out of being very scared. Really mm. scared from not from not having an orchestral experience, you know, mm. to play, and playing the downbeat. God dear.
1: Yeah. So just being really on it. Yeah. Just, yeah. 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 So so going back to the being in the studio with just two of you. Yeah. So once you sort everything out and whatever, and like you know, you you have a dialogue as you're going. Yeah. If you're if you're doing like a track, how how many takes do you normally do of it? It, does it vary depending on other people's opinions? Well, you, uh, you know
0: mean? what? If, let's go. Let's use me and Ralph as an example, right? Just me and Ralph. We want to not get bored, right? Because the first take will be brilliant and it'll be rocking, and we'll be together, and we we'll, because we always are. The third, fourth take, if we're going to not get bored, but it's going to be hard to emulate the energy of the first take Right. so what we like to do we'll do as many takes as you like but it would be nice to have some concept on the demo we'll listen and we'll go oh that'd be good there and we'll play that there it it doesn't take it doesn't usually take long not really and because if it's difficult music it's generally written out which we'll just read yeah all we're interested in is getting the groove how we like it
1: right you know
0: and uh well i did tommy blaze's album with ralph last week week before can't remember we did four tracks and it was killing we did a version of stevie wonders as um off of songs in the key of life yeah and uh i looked across it uh, it was so wicked i hadn't played with ralph for a while and certainly not that sort of music we generally play something a bit lighter than that <laughs> yeah. and certainly not as groovy and it was just so great it was so great and we had i think we had two takes and um it was just a question of tempo um and but the first one was us getting it together which was the slower groovier tempo and this and the second one was fantastic and all in the right place, but it was a little bit faster. And we sat around, we, it was four of us, uh, Robbie McIntosh guitar, Dave Arch, me and Ralph, and Hayden Bendall was, was the producer and the engineer. Fantastic. Um, and we were both sitting there we were sitting there play it. Oh, that's so good, that tempo, so good. Yeah, but we blew the end, didn't we? We, we blew it, we blew the end, and the second one's so good, the ending's great because we went into this sort of vamp at the end. And we're going, well, I'm... Um, and Hayden just said to me and Ralph, said, well, what do you think? What, what do you fancy? I said, well, look, if the first one, slower one, didn't exist, the second one, I'd go, that's a great pop. P-p- that's like proper pop play. Great Yeah. recorded vibe groove. I said, I know what you mean about the slowness, but we haven't got it, you know. And it wasn't a case of going back and doing it again. It was because... We had it already, and we had other tunes to do as well. Yeah. So there was, there's the time thing going on, and so they went with the, the uh, As far as I know, they went with the the perfect one. You know right. and, uh, and it was great. It was. There's no doubt about it. It was absolutely. both of them were burning. Yeah.
1: yeah. So you know when you go in now, if you're doing something like that with somebody you know. Yeah. You know that you can nail it first, second. Like they'll both be usable like perfectly good. We'll tell them.
0: But some people say, oh, that's great. That'd be, that'd be great. We go, no, we'll do another one. Definitely right. do another one. And the other thing, of this uh, this is something that I'd, I I generally insist on, is if Ralph wants to do his drums again, and I'm perfect, I'll play it again. Because right. I can always hear. I can all, I, it, it never feels right. If Ralph puts his, it, there's a click of me, and he goes and does his drums again. It won't be. It won't be groovy because he'll be playing. He'll be playing. On top of me, rather than us playing together. Right. The energy in the room. It sounds a bit wanky. Sorry. It's sort of no, like spiritual, <laughs> spiritual mumbo jumbo, whatever. But I believe that there's a there's when me and him play together, or me and Ganto, or whatever, If you play, if you create the bass and drums together you at all times you are talking to each other sonically Mm. so and if you know i think even if i go if i do my bass again on top of ralph's drums it it won't be as good as if we play it together right the drop it i can drop things in and we often drop fills in or do an edit or uh, he'll do the verse again because there'll be an idea for it yeah you know but I'll go and play with him you know or if I blow you know going into the chorus or, or wrong now I'll drop something in and that'll be fine yeah but if you're doing like a whole take this that's where the magic is for right me, you know
1: okay so how does it work on so for a second example if you're doing like a bigger thing like a big band recording yes or something yeah how how is that how does that differ from
0: well, you, the thing is, the more musicians there are, the more arranged it will be. Right. So, generally, you're you're sight reading and you're getting it done, and you just got to get it right. And
1: you do like one, two take still.
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, there might be. God did something for Britain's Got Talent big band, and the arrangements were unnecessarily hard for the brass. Shall we right. say? And we did it again. And, he, and then they changed it and then he did that and i could see ralph over the other side the getting the arse <laughs> for fuck's sake because it was like i don't know new york new york or something and someone had written something to tear a whole new arse off for it it was like pointless you know yeah yeah and you just gotta keep batting away and getting it right you know so uh... so
1: in those situations it's not like you can drop the whole brass in for just one thing or sometimes, they sometimes, do sometimes they do.
0: I mean, some and sometimes, funny enough, me and Ralph will go in and say, "We don't have to play that again, do we?" And if it's the right engineer and the right producer, they will go, "No, you'll be fine." You know, and we yeah. go, "Thank fuck for that." <laughs> so you know then what they mean? Just drop the brass on top yeah. What you've exactly, done. and sometimes there's not separation in the studio where you can play together anyway. Yeah, it's all just in one group. Yeah. 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 So it's sometimes we do. Rhythm section, fortunately, it's usually rhythm section first, and then they put the strings on, then the brass on. I mean, actually, on that session, funny enough, we did one all together, which took ages, and then they did it all in bits, and it's like, oh god, you know, it's it's a nightmare, really. But I mean, you have to keep that level of nervous energy up, yeah. And that comes back to what we were saying earlier on about uh, there are no passengers, there can't be anyone get. I mean, there have been sessions where people get the arse, especially lead trumpet players. Going, I'm not going to play that again. Mm. That was fine. That was, you know, and it will get sort of a bit sticky. Right. But um, that's why you can't be wrong. Yeah. And that's, you know.
1: So, being in a studio, is there are there certain skills that you would rank above others, or is it you just use more certain skills more in different situations depending on the session you're doing?
0: I like, suppose different, yeah, different skills. But like
1: you've got to be really on it with the reading if you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. But and
0: yet they're not going to stop for you. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, here's the extreme. You're in a, uh, on a film and you're sitting in Abbey Road Studio One with 90 people, all of whom are fabulous sight readers because that's what they do. Fiddle players just read fly shit. Yeah. And you've got, uh, well, I'll give you an example. I did Doctor Strange... That movie, right? And there is a uh, a minim triplet written over a bar, and I couldn't fucking phrase it with the fiddles, and they just sat there and went, eh, yeah, yeah, because they're trained to do that. I couldn't, I couldn't fucking hear it. <laughs> and it was kept coming all the way through. And, but the thing was, I got it, and I got it right. And then they went, oh, I think we'll have to do another one because we're going to change that. Can we change it? Because, what? Yeah. I mean, some film sessions are four hours long and you play one piece of music wow. for four hours and you sit there and then they'll watch it to picture and they'll come back and go, okay, right. Um, French horns, just mark that down to mezzo piano there, please. And you have got to play exactly the same thing. And this. check this out. You might have to count seventy-five bars rest before you go bong like that, and, that, and you had to nail it when you come every in every time because they're not going to stop for you. You can't get it wrong. So like going to the... stop with a bass guitar, are they? Yeah. With ninety people, for God's sake, there's a like, you know you'll get through it a perfect one, and they'll go sorry there was a there was a noise in the room because I mean in Abbey Road Studio One it's an enormous thing and if, if you go like that or even like that that'll come out you know it'll ring around the thing right. everyone has to be completely silent uh it's so it's it's i think it's pretty mm.
1: so if you're doing a film session with like a massive orchestra like that is there a lot of waiting around
0: waiting oh, to hear back from... unbelievable yeah. yeah and you've got to keep that nervous energy going every all the time that's i find that really draining
1: quite hard yeah for I, do, long I session
0: yeah I do I mean I don't do very uh, that in fact Doctor Strange was the last thing I did where I was booked in the orchestra because generally um, um, I do the end titles or they'll do a rhythm section session mm. but yeah they're quite tiring they're they're really tiring you can be there for days doing that sort yeah. of thing you so, so
1: there's all sorts of things yeah, there,
0: yeah it's fascinating all everything yeah <laughs> well sometimes it's really good I mean sometimes at uh, Abbey Road uh, they you know you're in a little booth so it's me and Adam just pissing about yeah. right in between <laughs> and there's, there's Ian Thomas in the room over there and you know it's uh, it's, it's kind of light hearted but it's very serious at the same time You know.
1: yeah like it doesn't
0: matter if you're having a good time as long as you're nailing your hair no 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 I mean obviously there's you can you can about too much, but mm. that doesn't really happen, right? Really, you yeah. know, we're taking care of business first, you know, absolutely, that's for sure.
1: That's really interesting. That thing you've got hanging on the left in there, it's just
0: like oh, well, that's my Van van Morrison cheat sheet,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like how little there is written down for each well, thing. Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll tell you that, uh, that um, when I got the Van Morrison gig, I did a I book to mine on Wogan. He used right. to have a, a, a chap show in the eighties and I was in the house band many, many times. Well, I got, I got booked to mine with Van Morrison and I went along and he, I don't know why, but he just booked me for his, for an album and I ended up going down to Bath for a residential studio for a week. And that was my start on my working with him. Right, And, um, Then I got, he wanted me to to play with his band, you know. So I said, oh, great. So he didn't turn up to any of the rehearsals. And the MD said, we could play any number of 50 tunes. I went, fuck it now. How am I going to learn this? So I took that piece of this score paper Mm. and just decided to give each tune a line. And then I'll have some chance. And the worst thing is, the band is invariably in the same key and a lot of them are very similar right but I used to tape that to the monitor ah, on okay. stage and um uh, yeah that's how I, that's, that's really my cute. cheat sheet yeah God.
1: <laughs> man so what can we talk about all the live stuff you've done now yeah well? yeah yeah like what was it like um wh- I mean what was your first big like live gig that you would consider like touring wise going off Cause you've done a few things with yeah different artists
0: yeah I have yeah um I didn't really do very much live stuff until I started working with Everything But The Girl. Mm. I did their an album with them and then a tour.
1: So that's how you got to know them? You were booked to do their album first? I
0: was or- booked... <coughs> funnily enough, I told this story the other day because um, I got booked by... It was an amazing Saturday morning because I got a call on Friday night beforehand and they said... Robin Miller was was the producer who produced Charday's album, and God knows who else. <clears throat> Can you come down tomorrow morning for a session? Uh, we had a bass player today, and I didn't like him at all. He, 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 this is really funny because he, yeah, he uh, all he did was talk about the Des O'Connor TV show and repeat checks and TVs <laughs> and all that, and he blew himself out. So I went anyway. I went down there, met Ben and Tracy, did the track. And Robin said, "That was great. That's really good. Can you come and back and finish the album off. And and by the way, this is for a film. Can you invoice Isabel Griffiths, who I've worked for for thirty years now? Right. That was so. All on that Saturday morning, I I ended up doing albums with Robin Miller, working with Ben and Tracy, to almost to this day. Countless out al- albums and TVs and little." Uh, live things and stuff, and I've worked for Isabel Griffiths, and all because the bass player the, the afternoon before did exactly what I said we were talking about, which is he blew himself out from talking about light and TV well, light no, entertainment. To do with
1: his playing at all. I, just I don't talking. think they liked his playing. Either, oh right, okay. But,
0: um, they didn't like his playing. I don't think so. So anyway, but that didn't help his case. No, no. it didn't. <laughs> And, and uh, it was just it didn't fit in. You know, right. it's like you don't talk about two ronnie's or whatever yeah on the yeah. pop session it's pretty obvious isn't it really but i mean he didn't give a fuck but he was busy and went on to still is you know so yeah, yeah. that's fine but right. um sorry what were you what were what talking about the, oh, I mean, what, live things okay yeah. so i went on t- i went on tour with uh everything but the girl
1: what was the like main difference you found playing live compared to in, in the studio where you, uh, you used to
0: i guess Well, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Touring is. I haven't really ever. I've done a. I've done. I have toured actually, but that, that's a whole other thing. Keeping your shit together on the roads and, right. You know, living in hotels and stuff. That's. It's great, but you have to take care of yourself. Quite intense. I'm, I'm not really. I haven't been very successful at looking after myself. way. <laughs> it's been uh, a lot of fun, you know. But uh, no, I, I. I mean, getting to play on a big stage is fantastic Mm. your bass sounds completely different right because you are in you know on a huge stage i mean this is before the uh, days of in ears and in fact um when I, i most of my touring i've done with tom jones that's been all over the world
1: yeah, I was going to ask you about um, that as well.
0: And when he started, he used to have, on the side of the stage, side fills. I don't know if you know what they are. They're just like massive speakers about the size of my CD case right. there, which you, he'd have his vocals in. Really? And if you could get your bass in the side, the, the um, sound on stage was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Because it's like bass all around them. Really. <laughs> fantastic feeling, you know. Uh, but you have to play quite differently, really. There's a touch thing going on. You, you, you don't get the definition you do in headphones. So that's a, a way of, you know... But, I mean, I've always played live in, on different things, concerts and so stuff. So you, you didn't
1: know. have to learn that when you first went out. You already kind of were aware of... Yeah, it. yeah. I
0: mean, well, I started playing live, so you, you kind of learned yeah, about I boomy mean, bass rooms
1: and yeah, stuff, Yeah, playing in a pub compared to playing on, like, a massive stage. Yeah. Two completely different
0: yeah they are but at the same time you could go to um, a tiny pub and the bass would sound like shit because there's like stone walls everywhere you know and then you know and all the trumpet players love brass players like playing in live things and then i like playing in a marquee right or where it's really dead because you can you can dial bottom ending um Like no, there's no tomorrow, and you can get a real. There's no boominess for me as a bass player. I love playing in dead places, you know.
1: Right. So, uh, compared to like all the stages that you did as you went around, did did you kind of turn up to a stage and have to assess the acoustics and change, or were they all pretty? No, you're in the
0: hands of the uh, monitor engineer, really, aren't you? Right. So you you, don't have much
1: say once you start going.
0: Well, you 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 have to be on it for the sound check and make sure, because it's no good shouting at him. While you're on, you know, yeah, and you get th- th- this is this is an important thing. Um, it's what me and Ralph always say is you're not listening to a record. You need you put things in your wedge that are on a need to know basis. Right. So, it would be nice to hear the third backing vocalist, but you know what? I really just want hi hat, bass drum, snare, bit of overheads, toms, bass. And a little touch of everything else. It's unbalanced but it's what I need to know in order to play the music I've got. Right. And that means you have to be on it, you have to be um polite to the monitor engineer who is invariably not polite to you. Really? Because he's got well, he's got everything else to do, isn't he? He doesn't want you going, Oh, can I have just a little bit of hi hat? And if you know, so you
1: have to sort of trade off um So you kind of know what you want before you go in so you can just yeah, tell him once. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And
0: then, I mean, as long as you're polite, they're, it's sort of all right. But I mean, you know, it, it, it's a compromise mm. and you can't be precious, not as a bass player. You're going to make yourself really unpopular
2: right?
0: if you keep moaning on about this or that and the other. And I think it's quite a different skill to playing like playing live with with the monitors. Yeah, it
1: sounds it. If you've got, like saying, different mix to what you're used to.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I funny enough, whenever we do gigs with them where there's a monitor system, and uh, whoever the drummer is will always say, "Can you put a bit of bass in the wedge?" And I, I, I always have. I stand it for so long because we're not. We're, I don't have a wedge sometimes, you know. But the drums will have a wedge. Yeah. And I can hear his bass drum, just cutting out my bass sound because I don't want to play louder. But his wedge, the bass drum coming out of his wedge is canceling my bottom oh i mean like
1: you see what you mean so he wants more
0: bass in general bass, no he wants bass drum he wants kick bass drum, drum. He, oh, right. he wants kick drum yeah, yeah, yeah in his wedge right and invariably uh, i i will say can you stand a bit less bass drum because it's <laughs> just cancelling my bass now and they're all i mean people are cool you know
1: yeah
0: um but that's a problem for me if 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 i can't hear myself you know I mean, I'm used to not hearing myself how I would like it, but I try and, you know, EQ it so so that I'm getting what I want, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when you're, when you're performing live, um, we, I'm assuming were you doing a lot of it in like, no charts? Uh, or... Yeah, with Tom, that was, yeah, yeah. With yeah, so, Hamish
0: she's no, there's no chart, and that's a pretty big, can be on big stages, yeah. or little, tiny stages, you know.
1: So how do you find how do you find it going from, like, being in, being in a session environment, you've got like, your right. readings readings massive matter skill, and then like having it all in your head.
0: Well, I'm completely share that, right? So because I've always had music in front of me, um, and but it depends. I mean, the, the the thing for me is I do so much, so many different things that I can't, I couldn't possibly memorize all the bands I play in. I mean, the Joni Mitchell thing is all charted mm. because I do that once a m- month every two months yeah you know and then Hamish's gig I've been doing for 20 years but I still a couple of things I still use a chart for just because I haven't had time to sit down and memorise it so it's really hard going right from right brain to left brain i call it you know
2: mm.
0: reading or, or memorising but I do some gigs where I don't use music and I love it it's fine yeah. you
1: know? I do you mean, feel like do you have to work on that beforehand oh put, yeah putting the groundwork oh to totally sure. yeah. totally
0: yeah, but I—I mean, actually, by the time—even with charts, I'm only using them as kind of reference. Right. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people. I mean, I, I'm definitely guilty of you know if you've got a chart, head to be stuck in the chart. Yeah. Just because it's there. Yeah, yeah. Like, how yeah. do you get around that? Just
0: I, that's just what it is. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, people criticize you for doing it, but. Actually, it's everybody's got an iPad these days, haven't they? With yeah. Charts and stuff, yeah, and yeah. lyrics and stuff. It doesn't look great, but you know, I don't. I have the luxury of three weeks rehearsal, hmm. or even the time, as we talked about. Me working all the time. I don't have time to sit down and learn an hour's set for two weeks' time. Where yeah. it's much easier for me to just write out exactly what I want. I mean, I've got a, a, upstairs. I've got stacks of music stacks of bass parts from people from years ago right because uh i mean just because i've written their parts out for them you know
1: do you find that that's the way it happens a lot of the time is you write your own parts
0: uh, yeah
1: well you rewrite other people's parts it's well like funny enough that.
0: i i do um what i've been doing the last couple of years is they put Elvis Presley albums out with the Royal Philharmonic.
1: Right,
0: Ralph. Ralph doesn't, and they take his voice off of the masters, and then we re-record um, the rhythm section, and they put an orchestra over because some of the chart, some of the tapes that they've got are live from Vegas and the plane. While it's really spirited, some of it is pretty clunky. And yeah. Whatever. Um, so sometimes we have just got Elvis in the voice, right in the cans. But sometimes when we did the early stuff, there's Elvis and you can hear the double bass or the bass in, from his headphones. So right. you have to play exactly what was there. Now, the first album, it was arranged by the orchestral arrangers and I got a bass part and I said, this is nowhere near what was playing. So it took forever because I had to transcribe on the session. It was just me, fortunately. On the session as well. Yeah, I had to go stop, 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 right, right, and transcribe is a nightmare. So what I do now is I get booked and I write my own parts out and I get paid for that.
1: Right. How do, you, do you
0: tell them in advance? You're like No, the producer says, well, use you, you sort it out. I know you'd prefer to do that. Right. because, the, the, And thank God we did it. Well, I've done two other albums. We've done three Elvis ones now. We've done an Aretha Franklin one and we've done a Roy Orbison one. They're coming out in, uh, before the end of the year. And the Aretha Franklin one was uh, All the Masters Were Burnt in a Fire so they've only got the um, actual version. Right. Now they've got the technology now to separate the voice. They, take, they can take it off. But some of those were her singing in the room with a band. So I had to transcribe Chuck Rainey's bass lines and all sorts of people's bass lines. And that took me forever. Jeez, but yeah it was a labour of love and I, and I really enjoyed it and me and Ralph nailed it in two days we nailed, nailed all the tracks wow Just, that was me and him and we, but we were policing it coming back to what you were saying um, we were saying oh it doesn't sound like that Mike." You know, let's mic it like this and the drums You know, let's try a different snare drum to try and match it and, yeah. and all the rest of it so it was a really interesting project to do yeah. really really interesting
1: so you wrote your own parts for that and then like any live stuff as well did you do your own
0: cheat sheets like you were saying? Yeah, yeah, yes, definitely. With Tom, that was always the case. We always, all the whole band did their own charts. Right, okay. And we, basically, Tom only ever turned up for one evening before we went on tour. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it's hilarious. All the whole production team was there and we'd rehearse, so we'd all write our own parts out and we'd, we'd have two, three days rehearsal and then we're out. Right. And by about the fifth gig, the lighting guys going, right, I don't want to see any music stands on the stage. So we'd learn it. Yeah, that's because he he wanted to light it as a proper gig. Yeah, without yeah Music yeah. stand lights and all that. You know? Yeah. So, uh, and then Tom would turn up <coughs> the day before we went out on tour and, and he'd go, right, what are we doing then? What are we doing? And We'd sing the new ones that he knew and he says, we don't have to do Delayla, do we? Bloody hell. You know, all right, no, we won't do that. And then we'd <laughs> just go on tour. We. I mean, Tom was amazing. He was just the most amazing. Yeah. Experience. We we did the production rehearsal. Then we were out on tour the next night, and he did eleven nights straight on tour.
1: Wow.
0: Without one off one, and then a night off, and and he, he always used to say, Stevie, it's the nights off that get you, mate. Because <laughs> if he's not singing, he's in the bar, you know. So right. so uh, not so much now. I mean, he, I don't think he drinks now, but. Uh, we we had such a lot of yeah. fun, man. I
1: mean, how did that come about? Because am I right in saying
0: you were the MD for that? I well? was. For, I was after a while. Well, how that came about? This is hilarious, <laughs> right? And uh, uh, I had a band um, with Gary Wallace, who's the drummer. The drummer who was with Pink Floyd on percussion and right. Like.
2: Right.
0: He was. A, uh, he is a great friend of mine, and we had a friend, a girl singer put a band together and that's where I met Gary and we had such a laugh we used to do her showcases and we were friends of hers and we used to do all the poxy little showcases all around London where like amateur bands would turn up and we we just went out and we got on a van and we hired gear and all that we had the best laugh ever no money we had the best laugh ever and she could never get us together never never we were so not we were very disciplined when we played, mm. but getting us together and, and stop stopping messing about was impossible. So she said, you are such a load of nowhere. So that was the name of the band. Really? The, the NWCs, yes. <laughs> and, and in, uh, uh, So that was the band. And then Dave Gilmore put together um, a charity concert uh, called Curd Aid. It was when there was some terrible family things of war over there and tom came on and gary was the md put the band together with Dave he sorted it all out made friends with tom and tom got a tv show in 1992 called the right time and guy pratt who played bass on the um concert was away with remember Robert Palmer or somebody so I got booked to do the TV show and it was that band the you know we turned up the NWC's and we played with Stevie Wonder Al Jarreau uh, Cindy L- Lauper uh, oh Christ Every it was a fantastic time six weeks up in London, wow, yeah. we had a brilliant 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 time and at the end of the TV series Mark Tom's son said we're doing Glastonbury it went fantastic so we rehearsed Tom's set wrote all our parts out and we did a 45 minute Otis reading Stacks um, set with Tom at uh, Glastonbury, and that was it and, and we went on tour with him and then we were his band English band he had a British uh, an American band that played all the casinos and Vegas and all that business over there and then when he came over here we'd go out and tour with him which was kind of every other year oh right so it was fantastic. And then Gary went off with Pink Floyd again. And I I was the MD for five, six years. Right. So what does being the MD of something
1: I like that Well, getting involved?
0: shit from everybody, frankly. Right. <laughs> but I didn't like it at all. I didn't like, I didn't like it being but I, it. But it fell to me. No one. Else. Everyone else was so nowhere that <laughs> I'd stepped up to the plate. And yeah, I mean, it was like getting people together, getting the tunes together. I mean, it was, it basically, it was, I was just, the MD meant I was the sort of person, in, in supposedly in charge of the band. I mean, right. you know, Ian Thomas wrote, wrote he um, counted everything in because he had a click. I'd do a bit of waving around if it was slowing down or speeding up. Um, and then we just went out and did our own part. So, I mean, yeah, I was kind of the MD. I mean, I, I, there was a couple of TV shows where I was MDing. I was actually conducting and stuff like that. Right. But like, uh, not not playing, like, actually? Yeah, no, I like, was playing as well. Playing I was always, always playing, yeah, yeah.
1: That's interesting. I don't think I know many base MD. I mean, is that... Uh,
0: I don't know. I think or? Shaka Karnal was as a base MD. Right. Uh, the MD for... Steely Dan is, a, is the bass player, isn't he? Tom Barney, I think. Right. Um, I don't know about that. I don't know. I, d- I mean, as I say, I was, it was, yeah, I was the MD, but I mean, you know, yeah. we just got on the bus and went and had a laugh, you know.
1: So was it wasn't, it wasn't like too much more, but did you have to then have conversations with like the team or Tom Jones? Yeah,
0: or I like... hired, I hired the band as well, because I mean, basically it was mostly of the NWCs, but, um, I, I had to hire and fire people right. sometimes so that was my responsibility so too you did
1: have some not so nice things to take care of
0: yeah very much so i did i hated it i in fact i didn't i, I ended up i i stopped doing it i could have been doing it for longer but i i just had enough
1: mm. and what does know. that mean you left the gig or you just i did me? leave the gig yeah. right yeah really yeah
0: so, that's, that's all right
1: yeah, it sounds stressful, actually, like... Yeah, so like, I didn't it doesn't suit me, because the
0: anyway. thing is everybody thinks you're getting loads more money than them, and that you're doing them out of money, and that every moan, they come and moan at you. And musicians moan, I know, because right. I moan. <laughs> so, and I didn't like it, doesn't suit me. Some people it suits, it didn't suit me at all. Right. So, uh
1: are you glad you did it though just to um, have done
0: it in the uh, first well place? I I don't think I would have been doing the gig if I didn't take on the MDs I, I'd love right. to have just been the bass player I'd love that I would have loved that and I'll never be I'll never ever be in an anybody's MD ever again right uh, uh, not interested um, I, you know I didn't get into it I don't I don't like that responsibility I don't like how you're perceived by your fellow musician and right I don't, I don't like that I, that's I'm part of I just want to play the bass yeah. really you know
1: so I guess it was a good experience, then, because now you know you never want
0: to... Well, I guess that. well, yeah, you could say that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of passively, aggressively <laughs> a good uh, way of putting it, but no, I, no I, I, other people do that better.
1: Yeah. You know? mm. So, going back a little bit to what you were saying there, like, you touched on it, but I have to ask, like, when you played with all the people, like, Stevie Wonder, yeah. just for my own, like... Personal, uh, how how
0: was it to play with him? Like okay, well before? that that TV series was an amazing uh, forward momentum for me mm. because it was the first big gig I I'd, I I'd, uh, first big TV show where it was like pop things. It wasn't sitting in the, in the orchestra playing behind somebody, right. we were the band, We were all of us on on stage, getting our own, we had a day's rehearsal, and then the artist came in, and, and we vibed with them, and we. it was fantastic, it was an absolutely fantastic series, and I think we did the first couple of shows, Misha Paris came on, I think, which was great, and then Al Jarreau was going to come on, who I've been a fan of since I was 16, mm. 17, and i remember we were waiting for him to come in the studio and i was really really nervous but excited so excited to be playing with this person who i absolutely loved his music got all his albums and everything yeah and um we did it and he was he was cool he actually gave he roasted us a bit actually because we were playing his new single and he came in and he um he said that. Okay, uh, have you have you got it together? And we went, yeah. And he bought Neil Larson, a fantastic piano player, as his MD. Okay, let's hear it. So we do the intro, and he didn't sing. He sat there, like, he sat there with his, with his hand in hand, in, chin, you know, hand under his chin. And we finished it, and he went, okay, play it again. And he sat there again, <laughs> didn't see. And then he said, great, and let's, let's do it. And then he got up and he was just as nice as pie. But right. it was like, it was a bit of a... That sounds strange. It, yeah, he, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't being, he wasn't right. trying to vibe us out. He was just going, we are to do this properly or, or not. Right. You know what I mean? And anyway, we came through that and I thought, God... I've just done a really fantastic gig. I've, my confidence went through the roof, <laughs> and I thought I don't have to be quite so scared anymore.
2: Right. Do you know what I mean? I've so actually. yeah, you, know, you can hold it yeah, in your
0: own with Yeah, yeah. You're going and playing with people who you have albums of and, and, and are, are massively. I mean, I'd done Van Morrison and all that, but I wasn't a Van Morrison fan beforehand. But to, to play with somebody like that, with that sort of music, sort of funk music, which is my love really
2: mm.
0: and then of course two weeks later they said we've got Stevie Wonder on the show and we went fuck you <laughs> it's a good job I'd had the uh, confidence of Al Jarreau a yeah. couple, of, uh, couple of weeks beforehand you know and they put us in a coach and we went to Birmingham to watch his show and we'd been doing we'd been playing I Wish and Do I Do in the band with our band anyway mm. anyway he came in and we played Superstition with him and it was an amazing day, amazing to be in the same studio. And Tom, I mean, Tom. Tom's up there, man, with Stevie Wonder. I mean, he's not an, a writer or anything, but he's a, he's a legend, you know, yeah, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's a long time ago. He was my age. He was 50, no, forgive me, 52. So he was younger than I am now when I first started working with him. And he was top of his game you know and, and i mean him and stevie they'd sung together in year for years anyway they loved each other and it's just yeah. being in the room with them is incredible it must you know it been amazing it was amazing it was and it's of course it's on tv i don't know if you can get it on youtube anymore but i'm uh,
1: sure it's probably up
0: there somewhere yeah it? yeah it's it was pretty happening i mean i i look i'm having the best time of my life when the camera goes on me <laughs> And then of course you know and then Daryl Hall came on and Sam Moore, and we did oh all sorts of things, and then of course then you take that on don't you into your you you have that in your bag of confidence and experience yeah um that you can uh, exist um with those people and you have you are able to and i mean and I, I ne I never beat myself up about it, but you know if i would if i was will Lee, in the 70s, I'd be doing like he does because he was around then. You know, I i mean, I'm just a geezer from itching. You know what I mean? He tries to carve a little funky career for, out for himself. Yeah. And, and so I just do the best with what I, comes towards me and try and make it as vibey as I possibly can, mm. you know. And that was a little chance to do that. I mean, not long after that. In fact, the year after, I, I, I ended up working with Steve Gadd for a day. It was just the most amazing experience. But I took God, yeah. just up the road here, actually, in, in Wood Green of all places. <laughs> I did ben, ben, and Tracy, everything but the girl. I did two singles with them, and they flew him over. Especially, it was just me, him, and Ben on guitar and Tracy singing.
1: Wow!
0: And Phil Ramone producing it. So it was a, that was an immense day, you know. Yeah, what's That's, Steve like? Oh, he's lovely, man. I mean, I said I went up to him at the end, and I said, "That's just been the greatest pleasure for me." with you and he went oh you're easy to play with it's fine you know <laughs> it's just so lovely it was great yeah. yeah and of course that's another one in your experience bag so you, you go hey my groove must be okay <laughs> absolutely <laughs> do you know yeah. what i mean and so when things happen where you don't feel particularly groovy you don't immediately think it's you it, right you know what i mean it's yeah. like it there's some there might be some other reason not that you're looking to blame anyone but it means that you're sure in what you've played. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so you can come from a peer, uh, a place of confidence in order to try and make it better. Whatever's yeah. not happening.
1: I'm sure yeah. that, that you feel like you played better because you have more confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you're yeah, not, yeah. You're not you're yeah. not scared to go for things. Yes. So much. Or... Yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've been extremely fortunate to um, play with. My hero drum, drummers, you know. Um, I did a day with Chester Thompson yeah. uh, for a film. That was great. Peter Erskine, great, amazing, great. But I did a big band gig with him at Ronnie's for Seth MacFarlane. You know, the very family yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. We did two oh, shows. Wow. Two shows. Yeah, it was brilliant, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. And Pete, Pete's such a lovely man. He's so. I, I saw him a couple of weeks ago. It's like, yeah. Um, yeah, that was great.
1: Is that like is that like a common thing between all these people, like um, Stevie Gad, Erskine? Yeah. Whatever. Are they just as well as being amazing at what they do? Obviously. Yeah. Are they like just genuinely nice people to hang out with as well?
0: Well, I mean, I wouldn't say I didn't hang out with Stevie because he just came in with his entourage, sang a song, and then a couple of things, and was interviewed, and buggered off. I mean, that was more just my personal being on the same stage as him that was like that but I mean
1: but the other guys that you know well Steve Gabb was
0: just sweetness itself Chester Thompson was lovely Peter Erskine fantastic yeah you know just geezers really just like me and you I mean Peter Erskine's the most down-to-earth person ever right you know he he loves English beer and (laughs) and hanging out with the guys you know he's been over here an awful lot and um but then you sort of go, you go, hey. I mean, I saw him at Ronnie's. He came up to me and said, "Hey, Steve, man, how you doing?" And I'm going, "Oh, all right, yeah, yeah." And then I put weather report on the on the CD on the way home, and I go, "What?" The <laughs> you know, I mean, he's a, he's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. He right. was he was amazing that, on that gig. I mean, I do the I play in the Ronnie Scott's Big Band, um, and he sat in the middle of us, and he he literally he commanded all the whole time on the stage and it, all he did was play from a lot of the night he just played four crotchets on the, the ride symbol. it was just the best thing to play bass to right. it was amazing the energy and the and the gravitas that was was put into it was lovely you know yeah absolutely lovely do
1: you find with stuff like that like the simpler the better with certain things or is it just the I way that
0: he did it I, I, no I think I think it, his authority is what it right. was he stamped he came in and just he didn't play anything flash at all mm. but the authority with what he stamped the groove on you know I mean I'm a big big band fan because my dad the, one of the other things what he he did do his greatest achievement in his life is he ran a big band for 30 years Right, which I played him from the time I was 18 until he died um, and I'm in my mum's garage, I've got four hundred big band arrangements that he arranged and copied himself. Wow! Um, so I'm a pretty huge big band fan. I played in big bands all my life, and I was in the National East Jazz Orchestra as well. Are so. oh,
1: you in Niger too? Yeah. That that everybody seems to go. Yeah, has, yeah, has yeah. Gone through that at yeah. some
0: point. Yeah, that was a long time. 1981. I was in that. too. yeah, I met. My wife, I met all my friends in there. Everybody really, you know. Mm. So that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. But yeah, he, and to play in the band that I'm used to playing in, Ronnie Scott's big band, and have Peter Ruskin sit in the middle of us and stamp his authority on it was that was nice. That yeah. was a nice thing. Amazing.
1: So yeah. they're talking about people that you know from records or whatever. Um you played with Herbie and
0: Wayne as well. I did, oh that was by Aunt um, Vinny was on drums on that. So really? wow. uh, um, yeah that was that was weird <laughs> that was <laughs> what weird
1: was that, what was that about
0: well it was um, Live from Abbey Road the TV show a really excellent high end kind of sort of like Jules Olland but with pedigree cause it's <laughs> beautifully recorded on multi-track and
2: right.
0: it's mixed and people come in and it's lit properly and you know performance yeah, Abbey Road Studio One and I was walking I was in Trafalgar Square I remember and the phone went and Peter Van Hook who is a drummer he used to be with Van uh, but he's a producer a record producer and I work for him do sessions for him and he said Steve Pete Van Hook hello mate Um, I've got a gig for you Herbie Hancock Wayne Shorter I went what? (laughs) on double bass I went no, 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 <laughs> no! I said I'm not like that. I can't play like that. And he said, "No, no, it's not. It's not a jazz gig. It's not a jazz. Gig. It's it's. He's done an album of Joni Mitchell tunes, and it's pop double bass, really. You know. And I went fucking LP. I don't know where I feel how I feel about that. He said, "No, you'll be fine. You're perfect. You're perfect for it. So, it was. It was Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, and at that time. It was uh, when I got booked. It was near Wilkinson on drums,
2: right?
0: And we were playing with Melody Gardo, the singer, and another singer. I can't remember her name. Um, and it got nearer the time, and Pete said, Pete phoned me up and went, "Uh, it's a change of plan." And I said, "Oh, what? You don't want me to do it?" He said, "Oh no, you're doing it." He says, but it's Vinnie Collier on drums." <laughs> I went, "Fantastic." Okay, so then I shat myself, you know, got the album, transcribed the charts and all the rest of it and absolutely was so frightened, so, so frightened, so nervous. I thought, what? They do a version of Nefertiti on there. It's like, oh my God, what the fuck am I doing? So I turned up on the day and Vinny's beautiful, lovely geezer um, and Herbie and Wayne walking and there's like, well, I've got the photographs up here. That's the day. Um, it's um, they were gracious men, and we started playing. And I thought I don't have to be nervous because they don't care about that. You just you've got to play the bass, and they were, that's nothing difficult. It wasn't tear ass jazz. It was tunes, you know, pop teams. I played Edith and the Kingpin. Um, and a couple of other tunes, I think, which didn't make it to the TV show, and it, they were just their vibe was so welcoming to me,
2: yeah.
0: and, and they weren't interested. They, they weren't interested in that I'd never played with them before. They just were serving the music, totally serving the music. And uh, Abbey Road Studio One, have you been there? No. All right, so it's this massive, massive place, right? And I mean, you know, it's a big, big room, but you don't realize until it goes silent for the start of a tra- take. I've been there many, many times for many years. The silence is unbelievable because it's, you're in a huge place that's treated acoustically. And so there's no sound like being in a vacuum. And Herbie said, okay, uh, I'm gonna uh, play a little intro here and then I'm gonna nod you in, Steve. And I went, okay, (laughs) okay. (laughs) And he goes, okay, shall we go for one? And he goes, yeah. So then the silence came in and there must've been 40 people, uh, technicians and film crew and lighting and us in the middle. And there's Vinny on my right and there's Wayne Shorter looking at me 10 feet away and Herbie over there on his enormous piano and Mitch Dalton on guitar. And he goes, okay, okay, are you ready? And going, the, the box said, yeah, we're ready. And then there's this silence happening. And I looked across and Herbie's just sitting there with his hands together. For what it f- felt like ages. And he picks his, his fingers up and he starts playing. And it's like, oh, fuck. Oh, <laughs> Christ. It's like, I've got all... I'm a Mars Davis nut, right? So Herbie to me that that quintet with herbie and wayne and uh, tony williams and ron carter mm. come on you know and he played this intro this beautiful intro and he just looked over and nodded me and i went "Bong, bottom f and it was it just went "Push." Vinny started the most exquisite little groove going i think we did two takes of it and i just it was just the most incredible thing to be in amongst that energy you know, fucking hell, man. Amazing, excuse me. No, it was absolutely amazing. I felt part of the music, part of, I felt that I contributed to it. I didn't play anything, really. It was just what was needed, you know. And uh, Wayne Short came up to me at the end. He went, you get a big round sound out of that thing. I like it. <laughs> I went, whoa, that's well, I love that, man. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan as much as a museo really, you know. Yeah. So, uh, no, it was a special day, and I said to I said to Vinny, we were talking afterwards. I said, "Fucking hell, Vinny," I said, "That was just amazing." He says, "I know." He said, "I've just been on tour with her," he says, "And one night, I stopped playing because I looked across, and I thought fuck that's Herbie Hancock. <laughs> so even he was, even he gets it, you know." Yeah. Like, like yeah. He said, "Don't worry about it, man." He says, "That's that's happened to me." Says, but just yeah he was nice nice man that that's nice incredible yeah. amazing yeah good day really good day
1: Jesus, and that all just came about just, just happened somehow
0: well i mean it's just because I'd, I'd worked with pete van oek and he he didn't want a jazz bass player because it was a pop tune hmm. and uh, they wouldn't pay for dave holland to fly over right Universal wouldn't pay for it, so they didn't have a bass player. (laughs) Here I was, you know, I got it by default, fortunately. But great man, great day for me. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I could have, I would have preferred to do it on bass guitar because double bass is not my first instrument. But hey, you know, sounds like you did all
1: right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty straightforward. It was was more about keeping my nerve, really. Mm. I mean, I, in fact, that's probably the scariest thing I've ever done. Right. Without, without any doubt. I mean, I had to use every ounce of experience, every ounce of experience, mm. to get to not just break down and sob <laughs> <laughs> and go home. You know? Yeah, yeah. In yeah. fact, it's funny because going back to the Steve Gadd session I did, um, which was up the road in at Livingston Studios in Wood Green, and uh, I lived even nearer then. You know, in, East fidgety and as I was dry, driving there uh, there's a roundabout and I just started laughing I started pissing myself laughing because of the enormity of what I was about to do to go and play with Steve Gabb and uh, there's this roundabout and I thought well you can either go round the roundabout and straight on to the studio or you can turn round the roundabout and go home and if you go home that's your choosing there. but if you go straight on you're going to have to bring something to this session you're not going to go there and be a blubbering mess and a nervous wreck mm. you're just you're going to be you've got to go and play the music and and be the bass player because nobody else is interested in how nervous you are you know they want you to play the bass and you've been chosen to do that yeah. so, Which so that again it was me bringing some kind of strength out fortitude out mm. myself my and using my experience and of course I came through the other end um, reasonably successfully, yeah. you know.
1: That seems to be the, th- the thing you're saying about everything and everything you've done. Once you start, once you get the contacts and whatever, Yeah. if you do something and then you do a good job on it, you're, yeah. you're only going to go up from yeah. there. Like, stuff's only going to open up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From well,
0: there. You know, I think the work comes, which you don't get any thanks for, is that trying to second-guess what might be needed of you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, if there's, you know... I can play with a plectrum. Some bass players don't ever pick up a pick.
2: Mm. And I
0: play with a plectrum, and some people are surprised when I play it, and pleasantly surprised, you know. And so that occurs to me, to have that in my arsenal. Yeah. So... I guess the the playing bit is the enjoyable bit. The hard work bit is is listening to that record and this, that and the other. What I was going to say to you early on is about playing the double bass. The fortune, the great fortune I had is in 1996, around that time, Nora Jones had a massive hit album and a hit single and it was a pop record with a nice tinkly piano and it was double bass and the industry caught hold of this and everybody wanted double bass on their record and what happened was for a little while they booked jazz double bass players who turned up with a terrible double bass sound which is you know a jazz double bass sound but without it they either rattled, their double bass rattled or buzzed or whatever. Secondly they didn't play in tune. And thirdly, they were bored shitless at playing a pop tune on double bass.
2: Yeah.
0: I'm not saying all of them and I'm certain and I can't really name names. All I know is that I played in tune with a good town ta- with a good sound and I know how to play pop bass. Yeah. So I completely cleaned up really Right. because anybody who wanted Everybody wanted it. Double bass was in pop on pop records for the first time in you know from that Nora Jones record, mm. and I did untold sessions, jingles, little TV shows, da da da, and that's what really I was very lucky there in, in, in timing wise. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it suited how I played to play pop double bass. Yeah.
1: Did you already have double bass before that? Yeah, well, I just, you, started, you learning. I'd oh, just right, started learning. I just started learning. Really and,
0: good timing then. Yeah, really good timing. And I, I actually, when I got that double bass, I decided I'm gonna do it as a hobby. And I went to a teach classical teacher um, to teach me to play with a bow yeah. archer. And I, I told lots of people I was doing it, and I, I, I never ever thought I'd be doing it, playing it. And then one day, I got a call from Pete Murray who said, are um, you working this afternoon? I said, no. He said, come and play du- double bass on Barbara Windsor's album. No. And I went, really? He went, yeah, 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 you'll be fine. Cause, and, and there I was, I was in. I was I was in the business as a double bass player. Right. All of a sudden, of course, no one's let me get away. I, I, what was supposed to be a lovely hobby, which I was learning every week, going to have a little lesson and yeah. practising and all the rest of it, I didn't really think I was going to apply it professionally you know and of course it's I've, I've been scared stiff ever since really you know cause <laughs> I, it's another whole instrument entirely yeah. really but uh, i enjoy it so it's good oh yeah. yeah extra thing to
1: be able to do it is yeah
0: well i mean the show that i just finished in the west end was playing both
1: right uh, uh, that's a big thing with shows as well isn't it like yeah doubling yeah you know. and then so i'll tell you, you would advise people to if, to to be able to make a living out of it, I suppose... You should, as a bass player, I, yeah. Yeah, and then also yeah. transcribes to everything else yeah. as well that other musicians do, like being able to turn your hands to different things. So that Adapt you, or die is the, is the uh, thing. Right, yeah. right, good phrase. Um, so with the session stuff, Yeah. do you feel like... Because there's, there's a bit less of it these days, obviously. Yep. Yeah. Do you think it's still a way that, that musicians musician can still earn some of their living through that these days if they're coming up from younger?
0: I think that there will always be a need for a studio musician. Mm. And when my time is over, and I mean, the guy I work for on Saturday, I've worked for him for 30 years, and he hardly does anything now. Right. But this was for a big Italian. He used to do all the Oasis um, singles. Right. string. He's a string writer. Yeah. Nick when his name. He's a lovely man, and we've done so many things together over the years. He did all the everything with the girl things, mm. um, oh, countless, countless things. But he hardly works at all, and I work for the new lot of string arrangers. But there is, but there's young bass players who are fine, fine players.
2: Mm. They're
0: doing their own little bit of recording. You know, I see on Facebook that they're in. Studios I go in, so you work for who you work for in your lifetime, yeah. really. And may there be enough work for everybody. I mean, it's not like the old days where, like, fixers used to phone up and say they they were given right. I've got a twenty-piece orchestra: bass guitar, two guitars, keyboards, bass drums, and then they'd phone me. There are sometimes like that. Isabel phones me for sessions where she's just asked for a bass guitar player, but right. invariably she. Gets yeah, booked by people who want me. Do you know what I mean? Because I've worked for them for years and years. Yeah. And, you know, but there are other must be younger players at building their own reputation mm. somewhere. You know.
1: Do you feel like there's any sort of route into the studios? Well, the thing or? is,
0: well, this is something I, when I, I have, I've only done it a few times, but go and talk to younger pl- bass players at a college or something, mm. and uh, they all say, "How do you get into sessions?" And I said, "Well." You're not gonna do the sessions I do, because I do them. Yeah. Um, but you know the little geeky guy playing synths in the room down the corridor that you all take the piss out of in the canteen. He's gonna play bass on his demo. Go and say he wanna play bass on it. Uh, because he's gonna write the soundtrack. He's gonna write a TV show. He's gonna MD this. He's gonna be in the theater. He's gonna do that because he's a keyboard player or he's gonna make little records. He's gonna produce a record. And he's going to want a basic guitar player. And that's who you're going to be doing sessions. And that is your way in. You see what I mean?
1: Yeah. So then when you're in, you then meet people through that. And totally. Like, totally.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I, you know, I can't stress highly enough that. Is that your peer group is where you are going to find your session work. And none of you are doing sessions now because everybody's still using old bastards like me. You know, and then the old guy. I mean, as I say, Steve Sibble, I've known him when we were in Niger together. His brother, Neil, worked for him, Sessions. Dave Arch was in set was in Niger with him. You know, these are, these are just the people I've worked in, in yeah. the last five weeks or something. It's just know. a
1: generation. Thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's, it's our generation. And we took over from the really old guys, the Jack Parnell, uh, the Muppet Show, they did all that. That, who were all in the Ted Heath Orchestra in the right. 50s, in the 40s and 50s. And they went and did all the TV and all the session work all the way up to sort of about 1981. And there was a TV show called Entertainment Express and they wanted a young band. And they cut all the old guys out and all of our lot from Nijo. All did it, and they've never—they've all been in the studios ever since. Right, that was a lucky break for those guys. Mm. I didn't do it; I, I wasn't on that show. But um, uh, I ended up coming in from slightly. Well, they got in, and then they got me in. <laughs> so it was a generational thing, you know. I mean, that Adam Goldsmith was in the um, X Factor Big Band, which went out on tour. Right. A lot of the younger players on that—it's a generation after me. Mm. They—I see them in the studio. So you know, I think. Well, I mean, someone like Adam, he's fine as fine a guitar player this as this country has ever produced. A fantastic player, you know. He's got a place anywhere in any studio setting.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, but he's very bright and he's very talented and and gives a shit about his banjo playing. You know, and things that are boring, he eats it and wants to do it. You know, he, as we were saying, if you're going to moan about driving to Manchester and back, this business may not be for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah.
1: So, what if you? What advice would you give to someone who's, if they if they're in like my position, just finished college, yeah, going out wanting to become a musician or like like yourself, yeah bit younger just, just wanting to start like what
0: advice would you give them for well, I'd, I'd, first of all I'd say go and play whenever you can with whoever you can right um, and it will be a very soul destroying thing because you'll play with people who, who you're not going to learn anything of apart from never do it again right <laughs> but you, you know, know I mean you have to go out and be noticed but without being pushy because that's something I have noticed about young college people people have Facebook me and messaged me and emailed me, and and are uh, too pushy, man. You know, it's like we all smell that a mile. Right. Of, you know. Where's
1: the line then? Cause, oh, I, I mean, don't that, know. Like I, yourself, you said you went and like you just went and sat in the studio. Is, I did. Is, is that? Do you think well, that's still a thing? Well, I wasn't we've, we've, pushy
0: ooh. at all. Right. I was. I was humble, respectful. Um, I wasn't cocky. I. I looked. I. I wanted to learn really badly wanted to learn and, but I never went with the thought that I want your gig. Right. Or can you get me a gig? Do you Never.
1: Like that's
0: an issue with people these days. I, well, certain people. Yeah. I mean, funny enough, when I was sitting in the show, I used to get messages from people all the time. Can I come and sit? I think I ought to come and see your show. And I could get sniff it from like just a text. Just or the something. way they wrote it. Yeah. And it's like, there was, there's one or two people who were just so nice and I could, the energy I got from their text or message or whatever, I thought, yeah, come in, man. Come yeah. in. And, you know, some, one or two, I was wrong. I mean, one or two were on their phone while I was playing. I thought, yeah, you're going to make this, mate. Because, you know, this is, if you don't know what I have to do eight shows a week and take that on board, you're not going to, you know. Yeah you're going to get bored, you are going to get bored. You're going to, you know what I mean? It's like, but some turn out. I mean, and I always turn and say, was that of any help to you? And, and they go, and well, that was amazing. Yeah, I said, and I was trying to say, look, I'll play this part here and it will be something real simple. And I say, check it out, right? Cause I'll play it here on the neck and I'll go, I'll slide to here because that's a nice warmer sound. And if you go from here and slide to there, these things bother me. Right. And this is what makes a great bass You know. If you want to know about that, that's I'm your boy. If you want to know about sight read, or how to play really fast, or whatever, don't come see me. Because <laughs> sight reading is just a language. Sit down, and get your books out. Look right across there. There's my the two pages that I have open this morning. Mm. You know. Sight reading. It's just I keep just doing it, it doing yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's no magic thing, you know, but. As I say, it occurs to me to worry about how long that minimum should really be, even though right. it's a minimum, you know yeah, yeah. It, it occurs to me that, that when I've got a, a two-bar pattern, that each one of those two bars sounds even, absolutely. Each note sounds even, and each time I play it sounds even. And if I choose to to open out the sound and make the notes a little bit longer to, to push it into the middle eight then that's what has occurred to me. If that doesn't so occur it to you... Decisions. Yeah, it totally yeah. is. It totally is. And, and if you go back and listen to records, the records I love, it didn't occur to those players because they are genius, natural players.
2: Right.
0: right? So when you hear Chuck Rooney playing whatever, um, it comes completely naturally to him. But it's not... I'm a white boy from Hitchin, Hertfordshire, right? So I have to analyse take it in and then make a conscious decision Mm. i'm not saying chuck Rennie's never made a conscious decision and he just plays out because if you if actually if you listen to uh interviews read interviews with him he's very much like that because he's gone the journey that i've gone which is learning about how your bass sounds how how it sounds recorded wise you know what i mean Mm. um that's, I, don't know, I don't I don't know whether they teach that in colleges. I have no idea, but that's been that's why I get booked. Yeah, without a doubt, you know.
1: Absolutely, without a doubt. Mm. Right. Should we finish with a few quick questions Go on in. about things? So, yeah. uh, in terms of gear, is there anything that you use the majority of the time, or like standard thing you think people should have as a bass player? Uh,
0: well, I have a Sadowski five string
1: right
0: which is my chosen five string fantastic bass um, it doesn't buzz it doesn't buzz electronically the frets don't buzz the strings are even they play it plays in tune all over the neck uh, my leads are not that do not go duff in the middle of a session and if one does i have at least two spares right I, it goes into a Sansamp DI box, which is every bass guitar I have goes into one of those, and I use that as a DI box over ninety nine. No, all of the sets, every studio, whether it be Abbey Road or someone's front room, my bass will go into a Sansamp, and then we'll go straight into the desk. Right. Um, all the engineers in all of the studios. Are more all happy with the sound that I give them. Um, I've got a, uh, a variety of Fenders Precision with round wound strings for rock stuff. I've got a Fender Precision with flat wound strings on with with foam under the bridge for the Motown sort of sound. I've got five string fretless, uh, a five string fretless. I've got an acoustic bass guitar. I've got um, I've got. Various other things that make various other bass sounds that maybe or maybe not anyone notices the difference. Because right. people say, you just sound the same on every day. <laughs> But I'm not having that. Because sometimes people hear with their eyes. Mm. And if you bring in an old Fender to certain people, they go, hey, that's an old old Fender, right? And I went, yes, yeah, it's 76. Oh, man. That's, yeah. Well, oh, that sounds great yeah it does sound great but he's looked at it first you know yeah, what i mean yeah, yeah. and it's clunky and it's 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 knocked about and all that you know mm. so i have those that's why i take in i've got a a, a a very nice old ampeg valve amp bass amp which sounds amazing with a micro in front of it people are asking for that more and more my double bass doesn't buzz it is even all over it's got a Fantastic pickup on it. Should you need to use that, I've also got my own microphone, and I turn up very very early, and everybody's happy right, <laughs> to really? see me. You use your own microphone. Well, I, can, I, I have, it? it's on there. I mean, oh, a pickup on the bass. I've got a pickup, but I've also got a, 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 a quite a nice mic, a, oh, a DPA okay. four hundred and twenty, which sounds really good. It doesn't sound like a lovely old. Um, valve mic which I get in the big studios Mm. but I like the fact that when I take my double bass out I go would you like to use my microphone because sometimes studios don't have they don't even know how to mic double bass up yeah so I'm taking away any worry anyone should have yeah about me plugging in Mm. you know what I mean
1: how did you get all of the stuff to do like knowing different mics now they sound is that just from purely being in the studio well
0: you know what I leave the micing of a double bass to the engineer but I
1: mean um, you're saying you can tell the difference between them all and yeah which well the sound.
0: reason I put one on my bass is because I know that sounds great hmm. if theirs doesn't sound great
1: right so it's obvious to you if theirs is a bit it, yeah, or they, yeah
0: and I know where to put the microphone but uh, having said that some engineers put their mic in a different place and it still sounds good right so it's again, it's knowledge and experience of it um, that uh, that's my equipment, anyway. Sure, yeah.
1: okay. This <laughs> um, my this is possibly the hardest question to ask anyone.
0: Right. Do,
1: do you have any recommended listening for people
0: for what instrument for bass?
1: Absolutely, anyone can do bass if you want, but like just okay. literally anything like somewhere to start or like. Uh,
0: okay. Uh, well. I mean, my it come um, it has to be down to personal taste in music, but I'm kind of an old soul R and B person. Marvin Gaye, Donny Hathaway, Stevie, um, all the way through that, or from Aretha, Chaka Khan. That's yeah. what I grew up with.
1: Do you have any favorite albums from any of them in particular, or is it just uh, well, it's like, hundreds or it's hundreds?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the early uh, early. Shaka Khan, uh, all the Aretha albums, there's just just, just just fantastic rhythm section playing on all those. The Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Come on, you know.
2: Mm.
0: Jameson, Bob Babbitt plays on that, uh, Chuck Rainey, you know, going through that. And then I went through a whole stage of Marcus Miller, Anthony Jackson, you know, this is just my instrument. Um, and then you go back and find people like. Paul Jackson out of the Headhunters, amazing, a unique player. Put it up, I'd steal shit from him um, and put it all in the pot. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that that will do. But my my male, the thing that does my head in is Miles Davis. You know, of which all of that, well, Marcus Miller played with him. You know, Michael Henderson, who was in his electric band, not. Not at everyone's cup of tea, all the different phases of Miles Davis, but I love everything and I forgive him all right. manner of things, including <laughs> his ridiculous hair in the late 90s when he had a weave and all that. It's just Miles. I saw him many times live. Right. And uh, it's a religious experience for me, you know. So uh, that's my thing, really. Great. You know.
1: Yeah. Okay, so last thing is there anywhere that people can see you? Play uh um, You do your thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I play
0: at the six o six. I play at uh that place, Boaters in Kingston. I play at Ronnie's. I play. I'm playing up the road here at the Woodman in Highgate in a couple of weeks with Adams Band, mm. Adam Goldsmith's band. All over, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of wherever <laughs> anyone, <laughs> wants to put, anyone wants to put me I'll go and play you know I, yeah. I, I love playing in pubs I love it I've always done it and uh the what, the woodman up next to Highgate Tube is a fantastic I'm going tonight actually Uh Ian Thomas is playing there right um it's free to get in it's fantastic band it's a great band Paul Stacey on guitar um yeah there's little venues i mean yeah that's where i play yeah
1: great yeah great well thank you very much you're welcome
0: look i've talked about myself for two and three quarter hours <laughs> <laughs> fantastic that's well, been great
1: though man. i've really enjoyed it good man good hearing everything you're,
0: about. Well, you're very welcome you <laughs> welcome
1: Thank you for listening to the Tom Hutch Podcast. I really appreciate you giving your time to listen. Uh, I really enjoyed this talk with Steve, and I hope you did as well. Steve doesn't have a lot of social media presence, but he has conducted a few other interviews, so if you type that into Google, you'll be able to find them there. And if you want to check out the show notes, then you can head over to TomHutchMusic.com forward slash podcast and find it all there. If you liked this episode please i appreciate it if you shared it with someone else who you think would enjoy it and if you have any ideas of guests that you'd like to hear from or questions you would like me to ask then please get in touch with me personally by email at tlhutchmusic at gmail.com or on social media at tlhutchmusic thank you for listening and i'll see you in the next one